Okay, we're live. How you doing, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the John Riley Project. We're going to cover all kinds of San Diego County headlines, news updates. we got a lot on the agenda here today. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. You know, we try to do this podcast every Wednesday, live streaming at around 12 noon. I got off to a bit of a late start today. But, you know, we want to do this live stream around 12 noon on Wednesday and then get a lot of feedback, a lot of thoughts and comments. And I kind of cut this up into pieces, spread it around throughout the whole week on YouTube and give everyone a chance to enjoy and to comment. So we've got a ton to go over today. We're going to be talking about San Diego Gas and Electric and their new rate structure they're talking about putting in that's going to be based on your income level. Holy moly. Um, We're going to talk about mass transit and all the financial challenges they're having there. And is this really a viable technology for transportation? We're going to talk about the the water cuts that are coming from the Colorado River. And this is currently being debated. And this, because we've talked a lot about water on some of our previous episodes. I'm going to give an update on one of the local politicians, Colin Parent. Um, He's running for a new office. This is all kind of part of the Nathan Fletcher fallout. There's going to be updates on housing, on homelessness, on UC San Diego, on um, healthcare in San Diego on lowriders in National City. And we've got updates on some other stories we've been covering over the past few weeks, including the Poway Unified School Bond, the Rancho Bernardo Cannabis Outlet Urban Leaf, and potholes in San Diego. And we're going to be able to take your thoughts and comments in the San Diego Community Forum. So, wow, got a lot here going on. So if you like to get involved, if you like to participate in our community forum, you can type in your questions, your comments, your hot takes on what's, you know, what what you want to express. Type that in into the live chat on either Facebook or on YouTube. I'll see it up here on my screen. We'll get you involved in the podcast. Um, All right. So how y'all doing? It's springtime. It's San Diego. It's a great time of year. And uh, God, we've got so much going on here. Um, let's start first with San Diego Gas and Electric. Now, this is an interesting topic that has just come up. San Diego Gas and Electric now is going to is considering revising their rate structure so that they can make it more affordable for low income people. And what this is leading to is a essentially a rate structure depending on how much money you make. So. Um, the the article here in the San Diego Union Tribune said a fixed monthly charge is coming to your electric bill. Will it make California rates more affordable? So this is interesting. Are they they're going to look at your income level and then they're going to base this fixed rate, you know, because you have a fixed rate and a variable rate. You know, the fixed rate is like a flat number no matter how much energy you use, and the variable rate is based on kilowatt hours you consume. So they want to have set up a flat rate based on how much money you make. But how in the heck is San Diego Gas and Electric going to know how much money you make? Are we going to now like have to volunteer our financial data to them? Are they going to connect to some other government agencies? I don't know. So this is this is interesting because this is just, in my opinion, sort of one step further down the road where energy is almost becoming less and less of a private commodity and more and more of a government utility. But at any rate, what's, what's happening here is um, – 
they're going to break this in, at least the proposal, is they're going to break this into four income groups. So if your income is $28,000 a year or less, you'll have a fixed fee of $24 a month. If your annual income is between $28,000 and $69,000, you'll pay $34 flat fee a month. If your income is between $69,000 and $180,000 a year, you would pay a flat fee of $73 a month. And if you have income above $180,000 a year, you would pay a flat fee of $128. So this, I mean, this is almost like a a tax system, the way the taxes are done. So the more you earn, the more you pay with this new flat fee structure. I mean, what do you think of this? Um, Now, sometimes I wonder why are they doing this? Now, they're saying that they're, you know, they're, they're doing this in combination with lowering the actual variable rate. So that's the second half of the story. So SDG&E says they will lower their average electricity rate from 47 cents per kilowatt hour to around 27 cents, which is a reduction of 42.6%. Um, so sounds interesting. Okay. But what, I mean, peel back the layer. What are they trying to do here? Now, on one level, they're saying they're trying to do this to help the poor, to help low-income people. But is that really what they're doing here? Now, I think there's more going on to this that's not being said because so many people are installing solar. And as a result, so many people are using less and less energy. And as a result, they want to charge more people for all that revenue that they've lost because everybody converting to solar. And you know, when you're on solar, you can't completely disconnect yourself from the grid. You still need to be tapped into the grid as far as I know. And so, you know, like in our house, we have, we have solar, we don't have batteries though, but we have solar. And when at night, when we're drawing energy, it's coming from the grid. And during the day, when we're generating electricity off our solar panels, we're selling that energy back into the grid. So just about every house is connected to the grid. So I think that part of this is a scheme by San Diego Gas and Electric to overcome the challenge of people converting to solar. Because they've been sort of playing this game now for quite a while um, in terms of all the different time frames. You know, if, if you use electricity between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m., you pay a higher rate, et cetera. And so in my opinion, that's what this is. But ultimately now they want to now know your income level. And based on your income level, that flat fee will vary. So think about this. I mean, people that have solar are generally going to be those that are most likely higher income people. And as a result, they're the ones that are going to have to pay the higher flat rate to offset that expense for solar. So I think that's what's happening here. Now, it does invite a lot of other interesting questions because, I mean, can you imagine if there were other goods and services in the market that were priced based on your income level? Like if you go shopping in the grocery store and there's like a loaf of bread, and if you make between $28,000 and $69,000, your price is this, But if you make over $180,000, your price is that. I mean, that's really odd, is it? I mean, usually you only see that sort of thing with taxes. You know, maybe you'll see this in the form of subsidies that are used to help offset the cost of housing or some other kind of welfare programs. 
But it's really interesting that a private company, San Diego Gas and Electric or Sempra Energy, is doing this. Um, but then it makes you kind of wonder how private really are they? I mean, it's kind of like the electric companies, the utility companies are becoming more and more not simply government regulated or government sanctioned, but they're becoming almost a quasi government entity. Now, San Diego Gas and Electric goes on to say the savings, according to this proposal, you know, the savings in lowering the rate um, for the kilowatt hour variable rate. Um, those savings would grow the more electricity you consume. So that's another thing they're trying to say. It's like, hey, if you use a lot of electricity, this is actually good for you. You'll end up spending less, even though you'll have a flat fee. And then on top of that flat fee, you have this variable rate. But if you use a lot of electricity, the end result is your bill will be lower. Now, this is just kind of like a whole different paradigm here because for the longest time they've been telling us to conserve to use less energy and now they're saying hey if you use more you'll pay less or pay a lower rate um so just a lot of mixed messaging here um now changing this rate structure by the way does not make the costs of energy go away instead it just reshuffles them around so you know as rates go up and down we're going to still see fluctuation in those rates. It's just a matter of how they're doing the shell game and how those dollars are being distributed. So they, they think that they're going to be saving low-income people $300 per year for San Diego Gas and Electric. And the spokesman uh, for SDG&E says, this is not a rate increase. We are not asking to collect any more money from our residential customers. And SDG&E will not make one penny in additional profit as a result of this. Do you believe that? I, I don't know if I really believe that. It just, again, strikes me as like fake altruism. Um, you know, they're they're trying to say that they're not self-interested, but the whole reason they want to put in this flat rate structure is so that they can recapture the revenue that has been lost when people have migrated to solar. So to say they're not going to make one penny of additional profit is false because if we let the status quo continue to unfold, less and less people are going to use SDG&E and their profits would decline unless they increase their rate. And this is just another scheme to do that. So um, apparently this has been discussed for decades in California about um, having fixed rate fees. Um, you know, it, it just makes you wonder if, if, if their goal here, because ultimately politicians are setting the stage for this. Politicians are passing laws in Sacramento that are enabling local utilities like SDG&E to make these structural changes to their rates. But if if the objective is to help low-income people, you know, and saving 300 bucks a year on gas and electric sounds nice, but the by far the biggest expense of living in California is housing. You know, whether you own a house, you rent a house, you rent an apartment, you own a condo, that is always the biggest expense that people face. So if we're trying to help out people on the low end, I mean, you could tinker with gas and electric rates, 300 bucks a year, nothing to sneeze at. But, you know, I mean, really, what is that per month? That's to do my math right. Is that 25 bucks a month? I mean, 
That's not a ton of money. Um, if they really wanted to address like helping out the poor, you would address the housing crisis. You would build more housing so the supply goes up. And as a result, the pricing starts to dampen and in many cases lessen. So this just is just odd to me how they're doing this. And uh, they go on to say, suppose you want to hook up your electric car and you want to electrify your home heating or your water heater. You're going to be rewarded under this rate structure because you're going to be consuming on net more electricity from the grid. So this whole concept of conserving electricity is out the window. I mean, we went in our house and we replaced all of our lights with LED lighting. We put in solar panels. Um, we did a lot of other things to optimize the way we use electricity. Um, we don't run our dishwasher until after midnight. We program it so it starts after midnight so we can use the lower rate. You know, we, and we've done other things in our house to be a lot more efficient with the amount of energy we use. So now they're kind of giving you the opposite message. They're saying, use as much as you want and you'll end up saving money. It's just, it just this is just really odd to me. Um, now, here's one of the big problems with this is how are they going to collect and verify the annual income data from each household? I mean, how would they do that? Um, and the SDGD spokesperson says, hey, we don't want to collect customers' financial information. Customers don't want us to have their financial information. The efficient way to do it is to work with existing agencies like the Franchise Tax Board and other agencies that already have verified information and find a way to communicate to those systems. So now SDG&E is going to be connected to the Franchise Tax Board, which is what collects our state taxes. And so now our reported income through taxes is going to be driving our electricity rates. This is like, it's like privacy is being blown up here. Um, now, fixed, fixed charges are not a new concept, which is true. You know, they've been, we have fixed charges here. I live in the city of Poway for our water. And this has always been a debate item. Do you have a high fixed price and a low variable price? And then do you tier the fixed price or the variable price based on how much water you consume? Or in this case, tier it based on how much money you make. Um, the representative from the Natural Resources Defense Council said, if done right, these changes would make electricity more affordable for those least able to pay and empower all residents to transition to clean electric cars and appliances. So, you know, I'm a big advocate of EVs. We have two EVs and we power them by solar. But to me, this is this this is a feel good initiative that is really a cloak to protect the revenue stream and profitability of San Diego Gas and Electric. Um, but you know, you, they don't say it that way. They say it this this altruistic way. What do you think of the fi of the flat rate fee? Do you want your income to be the driver on the rate? that you pay for electricity. Do you want San Diego Gas and Electric to have access to how much money you make? And even more broadly, do you think the price of goods and services should be based on how much money you earn? Like if you go to a dry cleaner, 
do you expect your rate to be different based on how much money you make? Or if you go into a restaurant or if you get your car repaired, should that be based on how much money you make? See, I, I just kind of have a problem with that. And it kind of goes also back to this whole idea of, you know, you people hear people say in the world of taxes, people need to pay their fair share. But now they're they're demanding that some people pay way more for electricity and other people pay way less, depending on how much money you make. Is that fair share or is that an unfair share? What do you think? All right. So let me know on the on the comments on the live stream uh, on Facebook and YouTube. We got more stuff to cover here. Um, you know, just a, a little plug here in between each of these segments. Uh if you want to learn more about my podcast, John Riley Project, go to my website, johnreillyproject.com. All of our podcast episodes are there, links to all the video clips on YouTube. You can also connect on social media, subscribe to our mailing list, read the blog. There's a lot of stuff there at johnreillyproject.com. Or if you want to be a guest and join me here in the podcast, you can do it there. Okay, let's shift gears. We're going to now talk a little bit about mass transit. Mass transit, yeah. This this headline caught my attention here. California mass transit is heading for a fiscal cliff. And you're like, oh my God, this sounds awful. This sounds horrible. So the headline here in the Times of San Diego.com is California's transit agencies face a fiscal cliff as ridership and funding drop after the pandemic. Hmm. Okay, you know I'm kind of a critic of mass transit. Because, you know, I when I'm driving down the freeway and I happen to go by like a mass transit overpass or if I'm at a stop stop sign where mass transit's going by, I always look inside the trolley cars or the train cars and just sort of roughly speaking kind of assess what percent full they are. And almost always they're well under 20% full. Um, the only exceptions that I've experienced is when I've used the trolley to maybe go to Petco Park or go to Vieja Serena at San Diego State. Normally, the trolley is barely used. And I kept wondering, why are they throwing more and more money at mass transit when so few people use it? Well, now they're saying they're facing a fiscal cliff. So... You know, again, I encourage you to share your thoughts and comments on the live stream. Just type them in on Facebook or YouTube. So transit agencies across California are grappling with a fiscal cliff, a decline in revenue and in the and and the end of federal funding that has been a lifeline for the last three years. Without the state stepping in, they say they may have to cut services or increase fares. Now, this this is remarkable here. Listen to these numbers. Transit has been hit by previous downturns during the 2008 Great Recession, um, but the, 20, the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic took an even bigger toll than the recession in 2008. Ridership was already on the decline er, as early as 2013, but dropped dramatically when the pandemic began in March 2020, and, it, and that hasn't recovered. And that kind of makes sense because... Everyone was told to socially distance. And so do you want to get in a a mass transit car with a bunch of yahoos that you don't know what kind of viruses are spreading around inside those trolley cars or in the bus? Um, 
that makes sense to me, right? Because everyone was told to social distance, to, you know, stay at home orders, wearing masks. I mean, there was a lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt during COVID. And then people now have made adjustments to the way they commute. In many cases, people commute very little because they work from home. A lot more people are using cars because for them, that's safer. So statewide monthly ridership dropped from 100 million passengers in February 2019 to about 20 million in June of 2020. That's like an 80% decrease from February 2019 to June of 2020. And as of June 2022, the numbers have come back up to 60 million. And it varies by region and by transportation uh, type. But there used to be 100 million. It dropped to 20. And now it's back up to 60. So this is what they call their monthly ridership number. So this is, the, I guess, the number of trips, you know, per the number of trips a person would do. So if a person's taking mass transit and they do 20 commutes a month, so that's 40 trips, that one person would account for 40. Um, and that's how they come up to this 100 million mark. Hmm. So the numbers are way down. Looking ahead, state regulations that phase out vehicles that use gasoline and diesel fuel will also reduce tax revenue paid to transit agencies, putting even more stress on their financial outlook. That's, That's true, too, because for those of us that drive cars, whether you're driving a gas car or an electric vehicle, we're paying Registration fees, if you drive a gas car, you're paying a gas tax. If you're driving an EV, you're paying an extra higher registration fee because you have an EV to, to pay for not just the roads, but these gas taxes and registration fees are used to not only just pay for the roads, but also to fund mass transit. To essentially, people driving cars are subsidizing the cost of mass transit for other people. And now they're saying they want to reduce people's use of gas power cars, and they certainly want those gas power cars to be more efficient, and they want to transition people to EVs. Oh, my God, this is going to reduce the tax revenue and make it even harder to subsidize all those other people that use mass transit. So you can see how this is all going. Ridership is down. Funding is going down. I mean, these guys are in real trouble. The California transportation sector accounts for 40% of the state's carbon emissions. So here comes the carbon angle. Because they're trying to make it to get people on mass transit, you know, so we can save the planet. And according to these numbers, getting more people out of their own gas-powered cars is essential to meeting the state air, air resources goal to reduce greenhouse gas emissions 48% below 1990 levels by 2030. 2030. So they say that compared to a car with only a single driver, subways produce 76% less greenhouse gas per passenger mile. Light rail is 62% less. Buses are 33% less. That, That sounds right, but I think a lot of that depends on how many people you have in those trolley cars, those train cars, those buses, if they are really underutilized with like 10 to 20 percent, you know, usage, then the savings can't be anywhere near that level. 
So I, I just I think this is all really interesting. It seems like all of these um, optimal ideas to transition people to mass transit sound so, you know, utopian, so feel good, but they just don't pencil out financially. Got a couple of comments here on the live stream from Mike Devine. Let's get him involved. Mike says, mass transit is not driven by the market. It's driven by a religion, a belief I do not share. Oh, I concur 100%. There is a romantic love affair with the train going back to the 19th century. And a lot of people, you know, have been to Europe and have been on a lot of those high speed trains and we've been on them in in Tokyo and a lot of other cities around the nation, around the world. But, you know, that was great technology in the 19th century, you know, even in the 20th century, you know, the world's changing, you know, it's, is this what the future is going to be, you know, for mass transit or are there new innovative answers to this? Like I've often talked about you know, self-driving cars as being really one of the big solutions to a lot of this, where we'll be able to not have to own a car. We'll just hail a car and the cars will come and pick us up and more efficiently move us around. Um, Mike Devine goes on to say, a reduction in the use of cars is not driven by the market. (laughs) Okay. So I think it's the same. Now, here's the other comment. Yeah. uh, You're basically making the same point. They want to reduce car usage. And they want to increase mass transit usage. But, you know, mass transit doesn't get you from where you are to where you want to go. I mean, I live in Poway. The closest, like, bus stop, I mean, like, for the little, little, you know, kind of local um, MTS bus is probably about maybe a mile walk, uh, maybe three quarters of a mile. And to get to one of the large bus um Hubs, which I think there's one in Rancho Bernardo, that's probably like a good two miles, three miles from here. Yeah, maybe even more than that. Um, And then God forbid to get to a trolley station, I'd have to get in my car and drive 20 or more miles down to Snapdragon Stadium, you know, the former location of Qualcomm Stadium to get on a trolley. And then if I take the trolley, the trolley won't necessarily get me to where I want to go. You know, if I want to go to Escondido, there's no trolley that goes from Poway to Escondido. I can maybe take a bus, but even if I took the bus, I would get dropped off at the the main bus transit hub in in downtown Escondido, which I think is kind of near the Performing Arts Center. But if I wanted then to go visit my mom who lives in Escondido, I'd probably have to walk two miles. It's just like, screw that. I'll just take my car. And my car, by the way, is an electric vehicle. I'm not polluting the planet so I can get the, the tree huggers off my back. But still, you know, I just, I just, I just don't get it, um, this love affair with mass transit. If, if we lived in New York City, which it was very, very high density, then I would maybe get it. But we don't. I mean, this is like sprawl with mesas and canyons. It's just, to me... You know, mass transit sounds nice, but the world's changing and technology has improved. I mean, imagine if we can get to a point where we don't necessarily, I mean, if you want to own a car, you can, but we can just hail an Uber to take us from where we are to where we want to go. And then you're not paying for a car. You're not paying for gas. You're not paying for an EV electricity. You're not paying for maintenance. You're not paying for insurance. You're living in a house. You don't need a garage. I could see us moving down that path. 
You know, it's kind of like the Johnny Cab from that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that was on Mars. What was that? Total Recall? <laughs> Where you just called the Johnny Cab and come and get you. But then some people, they're going to still want to own cars because cars are a symbol of our own individual liberty. Cars are less, allow us to live the American dream, or at least the Californian dream, of surfing in the day and then uh, skiing you know, in the twilight hours. A lot of people like to say that. They can, go see, they can ski and surf in the same day in California. No way you're going to be able to do that with mass transit. I mean, good luck. Even in the utopian vision of what a lot of these sandag planners have for us. So, um, I, again, I just have real doubts about this. But then I see what's happening with the requirement for all of these subsidies because less and less people use it. Ridership's been in decline you know, after the Great Recession, and then it went deeper into decline because of COVID for all the reasons that we, we talked about. Um, now, the agencies that rely most on fares are the ones in most dire situations, right? Because if you get a lot of subsidies, you're probably okay. But if you're depending on the actual passengers to pay their way, oh, you're in trouble because so few people use it. So according to, you know, Bay Area Rapid Transit, BART, their ridership has dropped more than 118 million in the fiscal year 2019. It's down to about 35 million in 2022. Now, BART got $1.6 billion in emergency federal aid because of COVID. But now that's, that's running out. And oh, by the way, they can't get drivers. To, you know, to man these these uh, these subways. And this is a problem that's going on throughout California. They can't find drivers to, for the buses for other mass transit. And a lot of it is because the buses, the, the drivers just don't want to take on the increasing role of policing people's behavior. You know, they, they don't want to have to be the guy in there to say, put on a mask. Or, you know, to knock off the riffraff that's going on. I mean, this this is interesting to me. And since January 1st, 26 people have died on metro buses and trains from suspected drug overdoses, already four more than the total deaths of any cause in all of 2022. And serious crimes such as robbery, rape and aggravated assault were up 24 percent compared to 2022. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of get that. I mean, you know, there's a there's going to be a certain element of crime that's going to be on mass transit that if you have your own car, you're mostly not going to have to ever encounter. So people are avoiding this for safety reasons. But, you know, I just remember when I was in Japan in the early 90s, um, late at night, you know, we, we'd go out to we'd work during the day. We'd go out to dinner and drinks and, you know, everyone takes a train there and then. We'd be on the train at nine or 10 o'clock and you'd see these businessmen in suits that were just ripped. They were so drunk and they were throwing up on the train, (laughs) passed out. And you'd have to be careful around a lot of that. There is a certain amount of that that goes on in mass transit. Again, you know, but, you know, Tokyo had had integrated all that mass transit into the city as it was created. And it works for them. But for San Diego to sort of backwards kind of try to plug in 
mass transit and all these trolley lines to me feels like square peg round hole. It feels like it's a forced, a forced effort. I mean, so what do you think? I mean, so these transit agencies are not getting enough money from the COVID bailouts. They're getting less money because less people are riding um, on those mass transit trains and buses. Ridership is down. Because people are telecommuting, people are driving in their cars because they want to be safe from not getting sick. People want to be in their cars so they're not dealing with a lot of riffraff. They just want to be able to get from where they want to go and they want to get there in peace. And oh, by the way, they don't have to walk two miles to get to the mass transit, then take the, the train or the bus and then get off and then have to walk another two miles or skateboard or taxi or whatever. Just easier. Get in your car. Boom, boom, go. Um, so I don't know. I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of this self-driving EV thing. I think this is what the future is. Um, and then, oh, by the way, they're also trying to push for free fares for students. And they're doing that in Los Angeles. And I know they were talking about doing that with for the blue line trolley that goes from Mission Valley up to UCSD and wraps around to UTC. If I recall, they were trying to make that free for students, which sounds nice, but I mean, it costs a shit ton of money to build all that infrastructure to go up. Have you seen all the concrete infrastructure and pillars and overpasses for the trolley going up the five and then it wraps around? Um, You know, you you can see it on the backside of the UC San Diego baseball field, the trolley there, you know, up about two stories high. And they want to make it free. Well, come on. I mean, people have to pay for that. The money doesn't just come out of thin air. So what they end up doing is taxing all the people that don't use the trolley or don't use mass transit to pay for people that do use it so they can get it for free. How is that right? How is that even fair? I mean, I just I just think the whole thing is bananas. What do you think? Okay. Um couple more comments. We're going to get to the next couple of topics here. Wow, we're already at 34 minutes. Um, If, uh, you know, I tell you, I I do another podcast every Thursday at 3. I live stream with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, you know, the legendary sportscaster, uh, play-by-play man for the Chargers, the, the, the number one anchor at the old Mighty 690, Mighty 1090, uh, the franchise. Started up sports talk radio here in the, on the West Coast. Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and I co-host a show together every Monday at 3, live stream. Also, um, excuse me, every Thursday at 3 and most Mondays at 3. Uh, so look up Lee Hacksaw Hamilton wherever you get your podcasts. Look him up on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube. You can subscribe across all those platforms. We talk about local sports like the Padres, the Aztecs, Lakers, Clippers, etc. We also talk about the NHL playoffs. English Premier League soccer. We talk a lot of NFL. You know, imagine Hacksaw, the big NFL broadcaster. So we do a ton of NFL stuff. So it's a lot of fun. So if you want to follow that podcast, you can do so. Just look up LeeHacksawHamilton.com. Okay, so here's a comment from Yuri Bolin on the live stream. Uh, From 1983 to 1991, I lived in University City, which was a beautiful city, a few blocks from UTC. Now it looks like downtown San Diego, a mess. Well, you know what? Yuri, you and I may have been neighbors. Um, I lived in Genesee Highlands, which is uh, kind of like this condo community that's just 
west of Genesee and just south of La Jolla Village Drive. I think I lived there in the fall of 85 and maybe a bit of the winter of 86. There was always a bunch of UCSD students that lived back there too. Yeah, when, I remember when I was a student at UC San Diego, I was a freshman there in 82. There was nothing on the west or the east side of the of the five. I mean, there was a few buildings. There was, you know, the Mesa Apartments from UC San Diego. There was the UTC Mall, but it was relatively small. Most of that Golden Triangle really hadn't been built up yet. And there was a lot of, you know, nice middle-class housing in, in University City. But boy, has that changed. I mean, that's a really high-density area. UTC is now turned into this really high-end mall. Um, Yuri goes on to say, I used to live on Regents Road. Yeah, I know where that is. There were a bunch of condos out there on the west end of Regents, and it used to dead end. But now I think it keeps going through because it's connecting with La Jolla Colony and a lot of that other area over there. Um, So much has changed in the University City. Um, As it's become more dense, it kind of makes sense that they'd want to have transit connecting them there. But it doesn't really get you where you want to go. I I'd be interested in surveying people in University City and asking them what percentage of them actually use the blue line. What percentage of people in University City, assuming they wanted to go to downtown San Diego for a night on the town, how, what percentage of them would actually consider getting on that trolley at UTC and wrapping around UC San Diego, going southbound on the five through PB and Mission Valley, and then working its way down to the gas lamp quarter. How many people would actually do that? What percentage of the UTC residents would actually use mass transit? My bet, it's very little. My bet is the percentage would be well under 20%, especially if you were actually seeing Behavior. Some might say they would use it, but never actually do it. Um, I, I, I think it's pretty interesting. Mike Devine says, hey, I used to live on Regents Road, too. <laughs> okay, yeah, back in the 80s, that was a pretty mellow area, wasn't it? That's why a lot of the people that live in University City right now are just so angry, so upset, because they're building more and more housing, more density. They want to hit the pause button on the VCR to prevent time from continuing. But, you know... There's evolution. Um, Communities continue to grow and evolve. More people are being born or immigrating here. Um, There's the population in San Diego County is probably at least 50% more than it was when I was, when I first came here in 82. Um, The area is growing and uh, a lot of people are struggling with that. There's a struggling with housing development all over San Diego County, including in my hometown of Poway and people in Rancho Penasquitos and people in Escondido and, I mean, La Mesa, Imperial Beach, El Cajon, Vista, Carlsbad, Oceanside. Everyone's struggling with all this housing and University City is one of them. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on down the road. We're talking about water. The Colorado River, they're talking about cutting off water supply not just for San Diego, but really for California and for a lot of the other states. And we really depend on this water. This, this to me is an interesting thing because we've been dealing with all this drought and now suddenly we've got a ton of rain. And so we're feeling a little better about it. But, you know, it's always cyclical. You know, we'll get 
just a deluge of rain one year, and then we'll go like seven years of very little rain. And we just fluctuate between the, you know, just barely getting our reservoirs up near the top to going all the way down to the bottom. And it's a yo-yo. Well, Southern California and the state as a whole could see dramatic reductions in allocations from the Colorado River water. One, um, they're, they're talking about finding alternatives for people to access water, alternative places to get water, because there's not enough in the Colorado River, like Lake Powell, Lake Mead, the, 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 those water levels were so, so far down. I mean, they were discovering abandoned boats <laughs> that had sunk in Lake Mead that were suddenly at ground level. They, they, they found abandoned bodies they were probably sunk in the Lake Mead by the by the mafia in Vegas, and now those are starting to appear. I mean, the the water levels have been really way down, and yet there's all these people in Southern California, and tons of people moving in Arizona, and Nevada, and you know this whole area. So it does make you wonder, you know, because we just we live kind of like on a desert up against the ocean. Um, now. According to one of the representatives um, from the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, he says, and again, this is the same sort of utopian feel-good messaging that you get from these sort of government officials. There is a better way to manage the river. Working together, we must develop equitable, that's a key word, equitable, realistic solutions that reduce reliance on the river by increasing water efficiency across agriculture and urban communities, developing new alternative supplies, and reframing the way we manage water as a basin. Fortunately, this wet winter has provided some space to develop those solutions. Okay, so let's break that down. Well, first of all, he's right on some of this. I mean, we do need to develop alternative supplies of water. Now, we already got the desalination plant that's in Carlsbad, which is doing great as far as I know. But I know it takes a tremendous amount of energy to convert that into, into pure water. And it has a lot of bile, you know, kind of like a lot of salt, um, uh, what you call it, waste that's generated from that process. So that gets a little difficult to manage. But they're, they're generating it. Like last I checked, it was 10 to 12 percent of the water supply in San Diego County comes from the desal plant. You know, good on them. Meanwhile, the city of San Diego has the Pure Water Initiative where they're converting wastewater. I mean, this is the toilet to tap initiative that freaked people out. But this is science that's wonderful. I mean, they're making they're converting wastewater into pure water that's fresher and cleaner and purer than what we get from the Colorado River. Which, by the way, probably isn't saying much because the the water from the river is really mineral laden, and God knows what's floating around in that water, including you know water that's been circulating with dead bodies from the mafia that were sunk in Lake Mead. Um, but the Pure Water Initiative, I think, is fantastic. I mean, I, to me, this is a huge win. So imagine if instead of depending on the river, you know, we were able to manufacture our own water by either converting seawater to drinking water or to recycle the water that we're already using. And then imagine in places like in Arizona, where there's just been a huge boom of, of migration and housing, 
particularly from Californians that are escaping the high cost of living in, in California. Imagine then that Arizona could generate more of their own water through, you know, through recycling or in other cases, desal plants pumping the water eastbound rather than pumping water from the river westbound to San Diego. Why not use desal plants to pump the water eastbound towards Arizona? See, in the end, I think a lot of these climate related issues like water are going to be overcome by technology. They're going to be overcome by by people just using their mind and coming up with new innovative solutions as opposed to conserving. You know, a lot of times they'll tell you to conserve, but that's just not realistic, particularly as the population keeps growing. That's why I, I thought it was odd that San Diego Gas and Electric was changing their tune because they have been preaching conservation forever. A lot of environmentalists have been doing that too. So this goes on to say, um, there's a couple other comments here. Oh, yeah, they highlight the need to come up with short and long-term solutions for the river. So what do you think of this? Um, You know, the other thing they need to do is build more reservoirs. I mean, to me, that's a no-brainer. You know, we, we end up with these El Ninos once every seven years or so. We just get a deluge of water, of rain, and the wet reservoirs fill up. But imagine if there were more reservoirs to capture more of that water. Imagine if some cities actually built cisterns to capture water underground, like beneath parks. There's a lot of creative things that can be done to capture more of the water, particularly since California is always in some form of a drought. I mean, I go back to my childhood. There were droughts in California. And we can go back well before I was born, there's been droughts. It's just the cyclical nature of the climate here. So there needs to be a way to expand or build more dams. Now, fortunately, they expanded the El Capitan Reservoir Dam down out in Lakeside. They actually raised the height of the dam, and now it holds more water. It's pretty cool. It'd be nice to see more of that. Uh, love the Pure Water Initiative. I think the desal ideas are great. They need to build more of that. And they may need to like have better energy sources to power the desal plants, like maybe <laughs> they may need to use nuclear power. Oh, my God. But nuclear power is a lot cleaner, a lot safer, and a lot more easily managed than it was in 1979 with Three Mile Island. There's still a, a panic around, uh, around nuclear power. But I think there are ways that these things can be overcome. But in the end, it's going to be overcome by technology, by the human mind, by innovation, by reason more so than by conserving and limiting. So now they're talking here about this limitation of water coming from the Colorado River. I don't know how the heck they're going to do that. And they say then, like I said, they used, they want to do it more equitably. Right? That's a politically charged word. Now, it's one thing to do it more equitably between states, but you know they're going to break this down by, well, people of color are going to get less water and other people are going to get more water or you know, people that are older or richer are going to get more water. And they always want to break it down according to all these political identity groups, who gets more, who gets less. So they can kind of keep fighting all of these battles where everything gets politicized. The better answer is, it's just to make systems that generate more. 
that we produce more. Okay, let's move on. Um, we are at 47 minutes. Boy, this is going to be a long podcast, but that's okay. Um, I take these podcasts. If you listen to the live stream or you listen to the full audio only podcast, yeah, it'll be like over an hour. This will probably be a two hour podcast. But when I split these up into little 10 or 15 minute chunks on YouTube, those typically do pretty well. I also, I'm starting to do these, these YouTube shorts which are videos of less than 60 seconds. And I usually record those after I'm done with the podcast on three or four topics. I share those. And those, by the way, do really well on YouTube. Gosh, I've done some of those that have gotten thousands of views, like within a few hours. It's unbelievable how good some of those do. Um, so I'll be spreading a lot of this content out in a lot of other area, a lot of other ways. I encourage you, if you're, if you're watching, if you're listening, please like what we're doing, you know, click on the thumbs up button. Um, you know, what that does is, is that it helps us in the algorithm. So when Facebook or YouTube are seeing people that like the content, then they will push you up to the top of the list to recommend our content to others. So like, follow, subscribe, and share. All of those things do great. You know, by the way, Elon Musk came out with a new um, uh, message a few weeks ago talking about what drives the Twitter algorithm. And really, the main thing you can do there is to share. If you share someone's post, that makes that post ultra valuable. And that's what boosts people in the um, in their algorithm. So if you want to support the podcast, you can do so by liking, by following, by subscribing, and by sharing. And I, I can see we already got some likes coming on board now. Okay, let's uh, move on down the list. I want to talk about a local politician, and his name's Colin Parent. And I've talked about this guy before, and he has just announced he's running for state assembly. And I found this to be very interesting because this is all kind of connected with the Nathan Fletcher mess that's going on with the San Diego County Board of Supervisors. So Colin Parent is running to represent the 79th Assembly District into the 2024 election. You might be thinking, well, who's Colin Parent? Well, he's the vice mayor of the city of La Mesa. And he's a very outspoken guy when it comes to housing. He's one of the I guess I would call them yimbies, not not in my backyard. He's a yes in my backyard. He's a guy that promotes a lot of higher density housing, which I'm a supporter of that as well. And so I generally like hearing from him. Now, by the way, though, he's also a big supporter of mass transit, which, you know, I'm not a big fan of. Um, but he seems like a good guy. His heart's in the right place. Um, he's certainly not getting in trouble like Nathan Fletcher. And so... What's happening is, is that he's now going to run for assembly because the current assembly person, Dr. Akila Weber, has announced that they're, they're going to, I believe Akila Weber is a woman, she's going to run for state senate in the spot that Nathan Fletcher was originally running in. Remember, Nathan Fletcher was running for state senate. Everyone thought he was a shoe in to win. Now he's hit the eject button on his campaign. He's trying to, you know, the Board of Supervisors is trying to get him to resign immediately. He's still sticking around till May 15th. I'm not sure why. Maybe to get health care benefits. I'm, I, maybe. I don't know. Because he's in treatment, you know, for alcoholism and other, other trauma issues. But the people of, of his district, District 4 in California, of San Diego County, they deserve representation. And now they're going to be in this no man's land for 45 days until 
he resigns and then they've got to find a replacement. Well, he's out in the Senate race. Akilah Weber is moving into that race, a Democrat. And now Colin Parent, also a Democrat, has seen this as an opportunity to step up from the city of La Mesa and then run for assembly. So, you know, good on him. Um, And he made his announcement. um, You know, it's kind of feel good. I believe public policy has the power to improve people's lives. But he does say, and I'll vouch for this. He says, I've never been afraid to speak truth to power and to call for change where it's needed. And that's true. He's very outspoken. He he's a true believer in his cause. Like I said, I support half of him and I do not support the other half. Um, Currently, he works as the CEO and general counsel of Circulate San Diego, a nonprofit that advocates for public transit, safe, walkable neighborhoods and affordable homes. So an interesting character. He's a guy that, you know, whether you agree or disagree with his solution, he's a guy that is serious about trying to solve the housing crisis in San Diego and in California, for that matter. And he actually comes forward with legitimate solutions. Now, again, we can debate them, but he, he's not just blowing hot air. I mean, he actually has policies. He's got ideas. He's got proposals. And you like to see that from politicians that are really driving for solutions rather than just being some guy that just complains all the time on a podcast like me. <laughs> so I think that's, that's interesting to hear from Colin Parent. Um, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about La Mesa stuff in our last episode. There's a lot of things going on on La Mesa with their permitting process. It's just been awful lately. They, they can't get out of their own way, and it's slowing down the approval for granny flats in the people's backyards, which is causing more of a crisis with housing. They're having trouble getting businesses approved with their permits. And now businesses are saying, screw it. I'm not going to set up business in La Mesa. And they're going elsewhere because their permitting process in La Mesa is so, so, so old fashioned, so cumbersome, so bureaucratic and so largely unnecessary. They're also having big questions in La Mesa around digital signage, you know, changing a lot of those billboards to big flat screen LEDs, you know, where they kind of change the image about every eight to nine seconds. Uh, That's a big topic there in La Mesa as well. Pretty interesting stuff going on there. I try to cover a lot of this local stuff in each of the little cities around San Diego. So good luck to you, Colin Parent. We'll keep you an eye on your election. And by the way, uh, Colin and any politician. You are welcome to join me here on the John Riley Project for a sit-down interview. We'll, we'll, we'll do a long-form interview, talk about everything. We'll, we'll talk about your background. We'll talk about your policy positions. We'll talk about the problems that you see that need to be solved in your local community. There is an open invitation for any political candidate to join me here on the John Riley Project. Either you can sit down here next to me with a, a second microphone, or we can do a, you know, a remote, you know, like a Zoom call. I use a different software platform called StreamYard. I can get you involved with that. We can do it remotely, or you can come and visit here in Poway, and we can have you face-to-face. So we'll probably be doing more of that in 2024 as we get uh, near the next election season. Okay, um, gosh, let's uh, let's keep going. I, I need to hopscotch a little faster through some of these next stories. This one here is interesting to me. It's government surplus property for the homeless. This, like, I, I read this and I was thinking, hey, like, this is actually an idea that 
Makes sense. So the San Diego County is going to create affordable housing using surplus property and tapping into its trust fund. So aiming to create much needed affordable housing, San Diego County recently declared three properties as surplus and available for development. So these are like abandoned government buildings. And they're now going to start to make these available for homeless people. And I'm thinking, okay, now it depends how they do this. I mean, are they talking about blowing up the the building and leveling it and then rebuilding housing there? Brand spanking new housing and having it subsidized by taxpayers and to make it so it's affordable for other people. I don't know if I wouldn't support that necessarily. But if they're saying, hey, here's an abandoned office building and we're going to convert it to make it easy for homeless people to move in where they have a roof over their head, they have access to heating and electricity, they have access to a restroom and a shower with minimal you know, upgrades being made to the property. I'm like, okay, that's good. That's a good short-term solution to help people get off the street because we certainly don't want them living in tents, especially during the winter. You know, this, this homelessness crisis is such a multidimensional problem. There's, there's the cost of housing. There are other economic conditions that drive people into homelessness. Um, there's issues related to job security, to pay levels, to addiction, to PTSD, to other mental health issues. There is no silver bullet solution. And there are long-term ideas to solve the, uh, the homelessness. And I think one of them, which I'm an advocate of, is just building more housing. But the other solutions are short-term. It's which, which is, where do, you, where do you move them? You know, because when you have a homeless encampment along a sidewalk, I mean, that's not really good for anybody. It's not good for the homeless person. It's not good for the, the residents and businesses in that neighborhood. So is there a better place to humanely move homeless people to a safer place on a temporary basis to kind of reintegrate them into society so they can get on their feet. And using, un, you know, abandoned government buildings, I'm like, okay, this maybe is a good short-term solution. So on April 4th, the Board of Supervisors unanimously agreed to designate three former medical clinics as surplus property and transfer the land to the City of San Diego's Housing Commission for Development. According to a staff report at the meeting, the region has produced over only 10% of the housing needed to serve very low-income households over the past decade, and about 70,000 units are needed to meet the need. Yeah, there's a huge need for more housing. I mean, they just they just need to build more. <laughs> so, and, and wherever they build more, it will directly or indirectly help low-income people. I mean, obviously, if they build more high-density housing, like condos and apartments, some of those may be affordable. In other cases, there'll be people that are already in older apartments and older condominiums that might want to upgrade and move into the brand spanking new building, which will open up the inventory of, of more modestly priced condos and apartments that could be made available for homeless people particularly if they get back on their feet and get a job and start earning an income. And as more and more housing inventory is created and there's more supply, then landlords won't be in such a 
strong position to keep rents really high. Because if if there are very few alternatives, if the vacancy rate is really low, then landlords are going to get top dollar. But if suddenly a renter has 10 to 20 options in a particular neighborhood, then those landlords are going to have to lower their price to compete. So more inventory is going to actually slow down price increases and in many cases decrease it. So that's really one of the long-term angles to this. They need to build more housing. And there's 70,000 units behind the eight ball for low-income housing just in San Diego County. I mean, that's, again, when people are low-income and they're on the edge of a cliff and they can't make their payments and they get evicted, that's when they become homeless. That's when they live out of their car. That's when they live in a, in a homeless encampment that is very visible. Or they might be living in a homeless encampment that is not visible, that's kind of tucked away. So apparently the county administrators um, administrates vouchers to 13 cities in the county, investing about $15 million each month through payments to landlords and operates 121 public housing units. Of the people housed in county programs, 66% are elderly or disabled, 40% of the households with children, 6% are veterans, 32% are working families, and 12% were previously homeless. So already the county's trying to help by subsidizing the homeless. $15 million um, each month that's being direct paid to these landlords. So the landlord is still coming out whole. The landlord is still getting that top dollar because they're going to get a certain amount of rent from the person moving in and they get the subsidy from the county. So the landlord is, is generally speaking, doing all right. The homeless person, they're getting a lower price they have to pay, so maybe for them it's good, but it just creates a greater financial burden on all the rest of us, and it doesn't ultimately solve the problem. This is only a Band-Aid. This just sort of covers up the actual root cause, the root cause being housing's too damn expensive because there's not enough housing. But at least they're talking about converting a county building. There's three of them. And I'm like, okay, that's a good news. I mean, because they, they want to get these people off the street. Imagine if they could say, okay, well, you know, six blocks down the road, there's this building with a bunch of empty office offices, and we can move you into one of those, closed door with a lock and key, and you can have a place to keep your stuff safe, to have a roof over your head. That could actually work, you know, temporarily. It'd have to be managed There'd have to be resources there to manage it, but it would be an improvement over having people live on the streets, an improvement for the homeless and an improvement for the people in the community and the, and the, um, and the, in the neighborhood, both businesses and residents. Okay. Let's keep moving. I got just one other topic here about homelessness. Let's just talk quickly about this. Um, students at UC San Diego and San Diego state are now protesting this idea of evicting homeless encampments. Because this is what some of these cities are trying to do is crack down on the homeless. But then these students are saying, oh, my God, the homeless, where will they go? They need a place to stay. And, you know, they're showing their love and kind of this altruistic notion of helping out the homeless. But not necessarily offering solutions. (laughs) So this is a little bit of a spin on on the story we did last week about 
California State Senator Brian Jones, the, the Republican from Santee, he's trying to push a statewide bill that would allow cities to evict people in homeless encampments, assuming there are places where they can go that are nearby. Because now, you know, San Diego's got this new app that they can pull up on a phone and be able to find available beds that are nearby. And so this is an app, you know, maybe some of the homeless would use it, but most likely homeless advocates that are helping out the homeless would have the app. And they'd be able to identify a person living in a tent and obviously struggling and say, hey, man, how about you go check this out? Six blocks down the road, there's a place you can go and you can have like a bed, a roof, all your stuff will be safe. You can actually have a, a restroom and a shower. What do you think about that? So this is what the angle to this. If there's, if there's going to be an eviction, where would they go? So students from San Diego State and UCSD are proposing, or excuse me, are protesting a proposed ordinance banning homeless encampments in the city. And they're out there chanting, housing, not handcuffs. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Housing, not handcuffs. So this group is called the Mustard Seed Project. And uh, this guy, his name is Logan Governman, not government, but government of the San Diego State chapter said, what are we doing to these people? They are real human beings. They're not just something you walk by every single day. Well, he's right. I mean, these people need help, the homeless. And he doesn't want to see them evicted. Because, I mean, if you just evict them with no place to go, then it's not only, it just doesn't solve the problem. It just becomes a, becomes a game of whack-a-mole where the problem just moves around. I mean, if you're going to evict them, you have to be able to direct them to a place where they can actually go. Whether it's an abandoned government building that's being converted or whether it's other, you know, charitable organizations that are providing um, housing for the homeless. So apparently this ordinance could result in people being cited for camping on sidewalks if a shelter bed is available. But it would also ban camping in parks, near libraries and schools and other places, regardless of the availability of shelters. Okay, so that that's a tough one because <laughs> as much as we don't want to see homelessness on the streets, as much as really the homeless are setting up shop on someone else's private property or in other cases on public property that the, frankly, the government should be managing that. We want them to move into places that are better, but for some of these, there's no place to go. Then what do you do? I think that's what the crux of all a lot of this is. But the, this guy from the home, the mustard seed project, Logan government, he said, this would, this would be hurtful for homeless people who need to access resources at the libraries because they wouldn't be allowed to camp in front of a library. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> now we're going way too far with this. If the homeless need a place to go, then let's find a way to get them there. If they need to use a library, I mean, what's the library for? It's for books. Is that why homeless people are accessing a library for the books? I kind of doubt it. My guess is they're accessing the library because it's more of a community center. Because it's a place that's air conditioned or has heating or has a restroom. 
That's what they're using it for. They're not out there, you know, doing research or looking up the the latest, um, you know, New York Times bestsellers. So if we need to have resources that are available for the homeless, and that's what these surplus government buildings, to me, makes a lot of sense. So that people that actually use libraries can use libraries for what the libraries are intended for. And that's a whole other tangent on libraries. I mean, you know, the value they offer or, you know, because, again, that's kind of like the trains where there's a, a romantic love affair with libraries just as there is with mass transit. So civil rights attorney Ann Menashe said a big lie being passed around by politicians and the media is that the homeless are to blame for their predicament. It makes no more sense to blame the unhoused in this crisis than to blame the unemployed during the Great Depression. It's funny how they call them the unhoused rather than the homeless. This is all the euphemisms. They're, they're, they're not illegal aliens. They're undocumented immigrants. <laughs> Just They rename me these things, but it's almost like you're avoiding the reality of what this is. These people are homeless. The unhoused, I guess. Okay. That's, that's again, that's like calling a used car a pre-owned car. Um, but it's interesting to, she says, they're no more to blame for the crisis than the unemployed are to blame for the Great Depression. Well, there's a lot of blame to go around when it comes to homelessness. Those that are homeless bear a certain burden of the problem. I mean, we are all ultimately responsible for our own life. That's why I talk about in our podcast, the higher ideal is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Your life is yours to live. And you should have the right to manage your life so you can make decisions about your life. Have the liberty to make choices about your life so that you can live your life according to your own values. So you can ultimately pursue your own happiness. We are all responsible for ourselves. That's the fundamental. And there are a lot of people that just aren't responsible for themselves. Now, some of them are homeless. Some of them end up living on, like in your mother's basement or on the couch. You know, we we all kind of know relatives that are like that. And some of them just kind of struggle and sort of get by. that don't really take full responsibility for their life. There's other people that, that do take responsibility for their life. And for whatever reason, they encounter bad luck. They encounter unusual circumstances. You know, they could be working at a company. And all of a sudden there's a mass layoff or they, and then, and then their husband loses a job too. And then suddenly, you know, one of their children dies and, 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 and it becomes this snowballing effect. Those happen, but really who's to blame for homelessness? Why is homelessness seemingly so much worse now than it was 10 years, 20 years, 30 years ago? I mean, obviously, there's been homelessness forever, but now it's so visible. And now it's a legitimate major issue. It's in the media. It's in the news. Politicians are always yammering about homelessness with few of them actually having concrete solutions. Like I said, I I think the number one reason for homelessness is that housing is too expensive. Because if you go into Mississippi or Alabama or other parts of the United States where housing is relatively 
inexpensive compared to California. Well, there's homeless there, but it's not anywhere near as widespread as it is in California. Because even if you are low income or you have a relatively low paying job, there are still more affordable housing options that are available there. I mean, you might still need to get a roommate or something. You need to be creative depending on what your income is. But it's not like, you know, you've got to come up with 2500 bucks a month for a one for a one bedroom apartment, which I know is true in lots of San Diego, in many cases, much higher than that. And the reason that housing is so expensive is because of supply and demand. I mean, there's always going to be huge demand to live in America's finest city, and there's very little supply. The supply is not growing. I mean, they even just said there's 70,000 less low-income housing units than our region needs. And why is there not enough housing? It's because there's always been this resistance to development by people that just don't want more people in their community. They don't want more building in their backyard. They don't want more high-density living in their residential communities. And so they've been able to pass propositions that restrict the changing of zoning laws in cities like we have here in Poway with Prop FF. They've been, in other cases, have been able to pass other ordinances to make some land development completely off limits and for environmental reasons. Or other areas, only for single family homes, we won't allow you to build a four unit apartment there. And, and so they want to keep their neighborhood the way it's always been at the expense of creating a housing crisis that makes housing more expensive and which ultimately results in a lot of people being unable to afford it. And then they become homeless. If housing were more affordable, there would be less homelessness, a lot less. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be more affordable with government subsidies. It could be more affordable if there was just more supply because then landlords couldn't get top dollar. They would have to compete. They would have to lower their prices. Um, Yuri Bolin on the live stream says, I don't know the percentage, but my guess is 75 to 85% of the homeless population is a direct result of drug abuse and mental health issues. That's a, that's a good question. You know, I, I know that they're doing a lot more of a census of the homeless, now, right, just at one level, just counting them. But yeah, I mean, it's a multidimensional problem, right? I mean, there are people with drug abuse and with mental illness that live in Mississippi and Alabama where housing is cheap and they can still kind of get along with a low paying job and still have a place to live because housing is more affordable there. Even though they've got issues, they can still survive and live without being in a, you know, in a tent on the sidewalk. But here in California, it's like, it's really hard for people that are drug drug addicts or have mental health issues to sustain their life. It also makes you wonder which came first. It's like a chicken or egg problem. Were they drug addicts that became homeless or were they homeless and then became drug addicts? Same is true with mental health. Did they have mental health issues and then become homeless? Or 
were they homeless and the crisis of homelessness drove them to have mental health issues? Those are fair questions to ask as well. Yuri goes on to say, there needs to be more treatment programs first, the, um, pr- pr- more treatment programs first uh, for job placement and housing. I spoke about that last November. Yeah, Yuri Bolin was a on our podcast here, a candidate for mayor in Poway. And there do need to be treatment places to help them. The question is, is who provides that help? Who funds that help? Now, I think the short-term answer has to be to help them get off the street. Because that's, that's win-win. If, if, if they are no longer living in a tent and they're actually living somewhere where there's a roof over their head with heating and air conditioning, electricity, restrooms, and showers, then they can start to get their life back on track. So they're no longer living not only in a tent, they're not not living in our car. A lot of people live out of their car and they go to 24-hour fitness and that's where they shower. So we need to get people into places to live. And the short-term answer, like using that government surplus property, that's that's easy. That should be a a no-brainer to move people in there. Even if you have to move multiple people into an office space in this, these abandoned office buildings. That's the, that would be a good short-term answer just to get people off the streets to short-term solution. But the long-term solution is to get them on their feet so they can start earning income and be able to be self-sustaining. And part of this is they're going to have to address drug abuse issues and, and, health, and mental health. And that's part of the problem. I mean, there's a lot of guys that are PTSD, they're veterans that were struggling from the Afghan war and the Iraq war. I mean, there were, I mean, there were countless people that were struggling coming home from Vietnam that just couldn't resettle themselves and get their life back on track. And a lot of them become homeless. So there is no silver bullet, but I agree, Yuri. I think there needs to be some method to help these people get back on their feet and we can debate, um, who provides it and who funds it. But it's odd to me that the politicians are always trying to solve the problem with a lot of talk, but very little action. But in the end, the politicians were the ones that created the problem. The politicians are the ones that sent people on these wars halfway around the world where they saw their loved ones and best friends get blown up and have come back home with shell shock and other PTSD issues. The politicians are the ones that made construction of housing in many parts of our San Diego region illegal, that have blocked construction because of varying numbers of regulations, permitting, zoning laws. The politicians have been blocking housing development to satisfy the people that vote for them. But they've done so and, and if, by creating this huge housing crisis with a not enough supply. And it's a serious problem. Okay, let's move on. I see we have live stream viewers kind of coming in and out, and that's okay. You know, we, uh, we'll have the, the full audio version. It'll be a downloadable. And then I break this into pieces that I, that I share on YouTube. Um, each segment, you know, five minute, 10 minute, 15 minutes. So you don't have to sit through the whole two hour podcast. 
Okay, a um, couple more comments. These are going to be hopefully quicker hitting topics. Um, interesting um, news story coming out of UC San Diego. This one caught my attention because, you know, I'm a I'm an alumni. I'm a Triton. I went to UCSD back in the 80s. And their chancellor, Pradeep Kosla, is getting a $500,000 raise. You're like, wow. I mean, because this guy works for a state run school, UC San Diego. This is a public university. Um, he's getting a half a million dollar raise that's going to bring his base salary up to $1.14 million a year. Now, apparently what's part of the story is, is that he was considering leaving and going to a, a private school to be their president or chancellor and would have been making a lot more money. But they figured out a way to pay him more to keep him here. Now, this is also, I mean, there's a lot of angles to this, but one of the angles is, is that there's a desperate need for talented people all throughout our economy. People are willing, companies and universities are paying more and more to attract talent. There's not just a shortage of, of drivers for mass transit, which we talked about earlier in the podcast, but there's a shortage of really good leaders for public universities. So um, this will make... Um, UCSD Chancellor Pradeep Kosla, one of the highest paid public university leaders in the United States. You know, what's interesting is usually when you look at the highest paid public employees in most states, it's usually the football coach at UCLA or, or University of Alabama. You know, it's usually the football coach that makes the most money. Maybe... The chancellor at UCSD might be moving up the list. I still kind of doubt it. I mean, $1.14 million a year is a lot, but these coaches make a hell of a lot more than that. So UCSD Chancellor Pradeep Koslo has been given a $500,000 pay raise by the University of California's Board of Regents to prevent him from accepting the presidency of an unnamed private out-of-state school. All of Kosla's new raise will be paid with private money, according to the chair of the board of regents private donors in the San Diego area collectively gave about $13 million to endow a chair whose interest income will cover the added expenses. So all of these so-called evil rich people have donated money to create a foundation that's going to, or an endowment that's going to spin off cash that will easily cover a five hundred thousand dollar raise for the UCSD chancellor. To me, this is this is again kind of funny because usually everyone's angry at the rich people, but yet the amount of philanthropy that the rich do throughout San Diego County is tremendous. I mean, like, I mean, we can make a huge list of all the great things that a lot of the people that are wealthy here that have done, and look at this. Instead of milking the taxpayers, people are voluntarily coming up with a half a million dollars a year. Um, now, a, a, according to um, Rich Lieb, who's the chair of the Board of Regents, who's also a business person, he wouldn't identify who donated the $13 million, but said the money was raised quickly out of concern that UCSD would lose Kosla, who oversaw a record $3.05 billion campus fundraising campaign that ended last year. Wow, they raised $3 billion. That's incredible. Um, because, you know, there's been so much construction on that campus, so much development. 
there's a lot of money in there for developers. So it makes sense that, you know, they, the, the people in the development community are probably backing him just so they can get some of those contracts to build the new dormitories and the new classroom spaces and all the other structures that are going on throughout the campus and all the infrastructure that goes with it. But there's also a lot of people that are very supportive of what they're doing academically and and from research perspective at UCSD, because a lot of that fuels a lot of the innovation and a lot of the labor force that are used with technology companies here in San Diego County, biotech, computer science, et cetera. I mean, UCSD is this Petri dish of, of talent, of intelligence, of innovation that not only powers that university and allows them to get a lot of federal grants and other things, but it's also this matriculates out into the economy and then these UCSD graduate students are the ones that are founders for some of these large companies that end up building the economy here in San Diego. Um, the chair of the regents went on to say, there was a very, very strong commitment from the community to get this done because of what Pradeep has meant to San Diego, including helping to bring the blue line trolley to campus, building lots of housing. <laughs> See, again, all these topics kind of interweave. Housing, homelessness, mass transit, now UCSD. They're all connected. Erwin Jacobs, the co-founder of the chipmaker Qualcomm, told the Union Tribune he was one of the donors, but declined to say how much money he gave. I mean, he's, gave, he's given a ton of money to UCSD, Erwin Jacobs. Um, incredible. Yeah, so the, the, the $13 million was generated quickly to help build this endowment. Uh, He goes on to say, he's been watching over tremendous growth that's allowed more Californians to be admitted. He's worked with the faculty, staff, and donors on all accounts, and he's dealing well with the housing issue. UCSD has just over 28,000 students when he arrived. Today, it has roughly 43,000. Kosla said the last year enrollment could hit 50,000 in about a decade. That's just mind-boggling. When I was a student there in the 80s, when I graduated, there were 13,500 undergraduates. Now it's three times the size, soon to be four times the size. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, the enrollment boom resulted in a housing shortage that pushed nearly 3,200 students onto waiting lists in 2021. They couldn't get housing on campus, which pushed them into the 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 regular housing market where people are renting apartments and condos and homes where there already is a housing crisis where prices already were expensive, thus adding more and more to the challenge, more and more to the housing problem. But they're addressing it. They're trying to put more housing into UCSD. But get this. The university is drawing up plans for a village that could house 35 to 4,000 students when it is finished. UCSD would be able to house close to 28,000 people, more than twice the population of Solana Beach. Holy crap. Double the size of Solana Beach. Now, they're doing that by doing high rises. They're putting in some, you know, 10, 15 story buildings in there. When I was a student, I think the tallest building there was Tioga Hall. 
on the John Muir campus. And that had to be about 12 stories, if I remember, maybe 10. They used to have the pumpkin drop off of that. Sadly, some students committed suicide jumping off it. That's a whole other angle. A lot of students used to be the top dog in their high school. And then they came to UCSD and realized they're not the top dog anymore. And they had to compete. And some of them struggled. And sadly, that resulted in suicide. Um, But I digress. Um, They're building high-rise buildings at UCSD to house people, which makes sense because their geographic footprint there at La Jolla Village Drive and Torrey Pines, it's not that big. I mean, you know, they, they can't expand horizontally. They can only expand vertically. And this is what's happening throughout San Diego County. But in a lot of cases, they're not allowed to expand vertically because there are regulations by the, the California Coastal Commission that prevent high rises near the beach within a certain number of miles from the beach. In fact, I think it's if you're west of the five. Now, UCSD is west of the five, so there must be an exception made for UCSD. But they had to go to a public vote to allow an exception to the California Housing, uh, California Coastal Commission's um, building height requirement or building height maximum to allow for the new developments going down by the sports arena. And again, why is there a regulation that limits the height of buildings near the beach? It's to appease the people that live there because they say they don't want it to be like Waikiki beach with giant, you know, condos and high rises all along the, the coast. And again, that sounds nice if we're, you know, going back into Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine to 1960s San Diego. But the world has changed and there's a lot more people that live here. They need to build more and they need to go high. And UCSD is doing that. And that's great. Ed Franklin on the live stream says, how many homeless people live on campus? That's a good question. That's a really good question, Ed. I I, I don't know. You know, um. Oh, I'm certain it exists. Um, I'm certain that there are homeless people that are students that are couch surfing in the dorms. Because, you know, when you're in the dorms, everyone has a bedroom, but there's usually like a suite that has a couch. I'm certain there's going to be some of that. In fact, I remember there was some of that kind of on the down low when I was a student there in the 80s that they were couch surfing or kind of moving around on campus. But I bet you there's more of that, depending on how well they police it. There might be students that are, you know, I mean, there's places where you can access public restrooms and showers. You know, they might be able to figure out a way. And there are still some nooks and crannies there that are a bit of wilderness on the campus that maybe they would set up a tent. I don't know. Maybe. That's an interesting question, Ed. I don't know the answer to that, but I know it exists. I'm certain it exists. The question is how much. But anyways, um, the chancellor at UCSD is going to get a big raise. So, you know, good on him. All right, let's uh, let's move down the line here. Got another topic to talk about. And this is similar about people getting a big raise. And these are nurses with the Palomar Healthcare System. They're going to be making as much as a $100,000 incentive if they commit to staying for three years. It's a retention bonus. And this, I thought, was a fascinating topic here. 
So Palomar Health, which runs the hospital in Escondido and the hospital here in Poway. Poway Hospital used to be called Palmerado Hospital. Now it's called Palomar Health. There's a, the, the old Palomar Health uh, Hospital in Escondido, you know, has been demolished. And they're putting housing there. It's near downtown. But there's the new Palomar Hospital. I don't know how new it is anymore. It's probably at least 10 years old. That's up there on the hill on the southwest corner of the 78 and the 15, kind of near the Stone Brewery. That's a nice hospital, by the way. If you ever had the, quote, pleasure or displeasure of actually being admitted there, those rooms are nice. I mean, it's like, it's nice. I mean, it's like a Vegas hotel in some of those rooms. Um, you know, that used to be shared by Palomar and Kaiser. But then Kaiser had been talking about building a hospital in North County for the longest time. They instead built the new San Diego Medical Center that's off of Balboa, just west of the 15. But they still had plans to build up in North County, and they finally are. They're building, Kaiser is building a hospital next to their clinic in, in San Marcos, right off of Twin Oaks Valley Road, right there near Cal State San Marcos. And so now, it's not UCSD, Kaiser is hiring a bunch of nurses, which is creating this competitive pressure in the market. And Palomar doesn't want to lose their nurses because, you know, if you don't have nurses, you don't have a hospital. If you don't have nurses, you can't do healthcare. Um, so they're now offering these retention bonuses as a way to compete with the new Kaiser Hospital in San Marcos. The public health care system, Palomar Health, cites recent nursing shortages as the main reason why it is pursuing what it says is an unprecedented program of compensation. Many local observers, though, are sure to note that Palomar has significant new competition rising in its backyard, with Kaiser Permanente scheduled to open a $400 million, 206-bed San Marcos Hospital in August. Yeah, you know, there's, there's always been a nursing shortage. My wife works in healthcare, and she often will tell whoever will listen, <laughs> including our children and our friends of our children and other parents, she, and, and she's right. She'll always say this. He says, if you want a steady job, be a nurse. You will always be in demand. You'll get paid well. Depending on where you work and what you do, you could be paid pretty well, really well, and you'll get good benefits. I mean, it's a good, solid job to be a nurse. But there's a nursing shortage. I mean, there's a labor shortage. You can't get drivers for mass transit. You can't get people to be nurses. And then meanwhile, we got all the other people that aren't working at all. Which is a whole other issue. It's like the economy has been so distorted by, again, by a lot of these crazy policies. I mean, think about how, how many people that are international students that come to the United States and get a degree. And then we send them back to the nation they came from. To Vietnam or India or Pakistan or Kenya, we should be, when people graduate from college, we should be giving them a green card and saying, stay here and bring your talents to the United States of America. 
and help us fill some of these jobs, including nursing jobs. I mean, this is a real crisis. And not only is there a nursing shortage, but there is a, um, a competitive pressure here in San Diego County where people are struggling to hire new nurses. And Kaiser is going to be up in their game trying to recruit a lot of this talent from Palomar Health. They're trying to hold on. Ed Franklin goes on to say, seems like we have too much money for some things and not enough for others. That is exactly right, Ed. And you know why? It's because central planners in government, regulators, are all trying to turn the knobs and move the levers to optimize the economy the the so-called right way. But there is no right way. What they need to do is not regulate it. They need to loosen the regulations and let people freely move about, freely pursue jobs, freely pursue housing, freely pursue transportation. And then those are the ones that will end up getting funded based on what people actually demand. But instead, they're throwing money at things for things that people don't really want, like, like mass transit. The ridership is going down, but they keep throwing more money at it. And then meanwhile, there's a shortage of nurses. I mean, it, it, there's all these distortions that have been created by a lot of what's going on in the economy. Ed goes on to say, we have all the money we need. It's just in the wrong people's pockets. Sort of. Yeah, I, I think we we have tremendous wealth in America. And it's not so much it's in the wrong people's pockets. It's the fact that there are people that are in charge that are trying to take it out of one person's pocket and forcibly put it in someone else's pocket. And the, the recipient of that money is often not a homeless person, but instead a rich developer. You know, a lot of this, the way they use this system of manipulating the regulations and the subsidies is a ploy to reward donors, to reward the politically well-connected. But they do it under this cloak, under this, under this facade of trying to help out the low income, the homeless, the, the people that are desperate. And yeah, some of the money goes there, but not all of it. So again, I think these politicians have screwed it up. We would have more homes built if they let housing developers build, which then would have less homelessness. We'd have more nurses available if we would not make housing so expensive in California where people leave California somewhere else in the United States to pursue a nursing career, or God forbid they go back to a country where they came from. We could actually be retaining a lot of these people in America, but they set up immigration laws and all kinds of things, all kinds of other problems. My, get off my soapbox here. Um, Diane Hansen, Palomar CEO, um, didn't mention Kaiser, but said these payments are designed to demonstrate our commitment to nurses because they do. They need to make sure that the nursing community knows that Palomar Health's got their back because if you don't have nurses, I mean – if nurses go on strike, it's hell. I mean, 
hospitals cannot function. And there are nurses that are on the low end that change bedpans, but there are nurses on the high end that are not only registered nurses, but, I mean, they're like the equivalent of, of a family practice doctor. And there's a whole range of different nursing skills and specialties that are available there. I mean, there are nurses that only specialize in oncology with cancer patients, as an example. My son is dating one. Um, you don't have nurses. Your healthcare doesn't work. And so, yeah, Palomar Health's got a, a serious challenge here. They got to retain their existing employees and they've got to do it and come up with more money to do it. Um, Nathan Kaufman, managing director of San Diego based Kaufman Strategic Advisor, said there is currently furious competition for skilled healthcare workers across the region. So, this is kind of like the UCSD chancellor. There is huge demand for people with really high skills, specialized skills. And there's a shortage of good workers that can fill those jobs. So, those that have specialized skills that are in demand are going to have a much greater chance of not only getting those jobs, but they're going to get rewarded handsomely for those because these companies are desperate to get that talent. And that's what's happening in nursing. Now, I wonder what Palomar Health is going to do, because I remember when they built that Palomar Hospital in Escondido, I heard they were having financial challenges. There just weren't enough sick people coming in. And then when Kaiser disconnected to start their own hospital, that really cut off their revenue stream. So I wonder how they're doing. I don't know. I, I remember it was like five years ago or so that I had heard that there were some financial challenges at the Palomar Hospital there in Escondido. So get this, if a thousand of Palomar's roughly 1,200 nurses were to receive a full $100,000 incentive payment, Palomar would be on the hook to pay out $100 million in incentive payments over three years. That's amazing. And, you know, Palomar Health is just, you know, not that big. It's just here in kind of this North County Inland area, as far as I know. I mean, there's a hospital in Escondido. There's a hospital here in Poway. There's some clinics out and about. I don't know exactly where they are. It's amazing. They have um, 1,200 nurses already. So, Gosh, I'll, I'll just repeat what my wife always preaches. If you want a steady job, if you're looking for a field to go into, if you're a college student, you're not sure what you want to do with your life, go into healthcare. Be a nurse. There is huge demand. There's competitive pressure for nurses. They're getting rewarded handsomely with retention bonuses. Some nurses actually have these jobs where they are like um, pinch hitters, where they travel and they'll go for a month into one city and be a nurse for a month there. And then they get, then they move to another city and they get paid really well to do that. But, you know, this is also kind of a consequence of, of the baby boomers, you know, as the baby boomers are getting older and the baby boomers are retiring more and more old people, more and more demand for healthcare. Then on top of it, whether you agree or disagree with the policies, there's more and more government dollars being spent on healthcare, which then fuels a lot more of the dollars that are available to compensate these people. So, yeah, if you're unsure what to do, I, I, another guy that I know, I used to play music with about 20 years ago, and he was a software developer 
and he did RPG language programming, which is kind of like almost like Cobalt. It's like old school uh, business language, I think, on the AS400, an IBM computer. And he saw his industry declining. He saw a lot of that work being outsourced to India. And what did he do? He ended up going and taking some classes and got a certification to be a, a medical imagery technician. So he does x-rays and MRIs and he's the tech and he's now making more money in a far more secure job with very good healthcare benefits. He's in a way better position than he was when he was a computer programmer, seeing his world shrink and seeing a lot of his coworkers laid off as more and more of that work was outsourced to India. So um, always a good idea to kind of keep your eyes open when you're planning your career. Um, okay, I got a bunch more I'm going to get to. We're going to talk about lowriders in National City. I've got updates on cannabis and Rancho Bernardo, updates about the Poway Unified School Bond, updates on potholes throughout San Diego County. A lot of stuff here. And the community forum. I got a bunch of YouTube comments. We're going to talk about that. This is going to be a monster podcast. This We're at an hour 45. It'll probably be two hours, maybe two and a half hours. But this content, like I said, I split it up and put it out in chunks that can be shared all across the different social media platforms. And by the way, if you'd like to support what we're doing, if you'd like to financially donate to the John Riley Project because you like the content we do, the content we provide, you think it's a value here in San Diego, you can make a donation. Two bucks, five bucks, 10 bucks, one-time payment. You can donate a hundred bucks a month if you like. Go to johnreillyproject.com and there in the top menu, there's a donate button. And, and you can uh, support content that you like. Win-win relationship, right? I provide content that you like, and you can return the favor, return the other half of the win-win arrangement, and you can support me if you like. It's all voluntary, and uh, we appreciate everything you'd offer. And what would I use the money for? I mean, pretty much just promoting the podcast. I'd use it to advertise the podcast. I would use it maybe to buy, one, I want to get one more camera. Um, but really, I'd be using it to promote the podcast to grow the audience. So if you're so interested in that, that's how you can do it. Go to johnreillyproject.com, click on donate, and you can make a donation. And we appreciate your support. Okay, let's uh, move down the list and let's talk about low riders, man. This is a great story. I mean, I love this story. Everything about it is awesome. So after three decades, National City is ending the cruising ban with lowriders. And everyone's happy about this. So, you know, for the longest time, they they had banned lowriders. They had banned cruising. Well, technically, they banned the cruising. You could still have lowriders, but a lot of times the lowriders were in car shows where they were all set up in a parking lot and people could check them out, but they wouldn't allow cruising. I mean, what's cruising? You know, they kind of go up and down a street and it's like a social event. I remember back in the day when I was in high school um, in the Bay Area, on Friday nights, high school kids would cruise on the El Camino Real in San Mateo and a little bit of Belmont. And that was a thing for a while. Um, But I know amongst the lowrider community, this is a really big thing. And for a lot of people, this, this has racial and cultural implications. A lot of people didn't really understand it. Like, who in the hell are these people with these goofy cars? And, you know, I don't want this element. I'm using air quotes, this element in my community. And if you think about this, I mean, 
this is just the coolest thing ever because these are people that love their cars. I mean, they're no different than, you know, some MAGA guy that loves his big ass four by four pickup. They're no different than, you know, a guy that loves his Corvette or his Austin Healey. There are car enthusiasts in every category of cars, including lowriders. And the cool part about lowriders is, is that they are legitimately a work of art. Um, the way they're restored, the way that they are finished, a lot of the customization that are done to these cars is great. And it's not just the goofy hydraulics and stuff, but it's just the way they're painted the way they're restored. I mean, it's a love affair with these cars and it brings people together to brings people together for all the right reasons. But sometimes people think it's for the wrong reasons because they just don't understand it. And this is part of the challenge where it gets to race and culture and the like, but a couple of comments on this. And again, good on national city for doing this, joining with other communities across the state that have recently embraced low rider culture and heritage National city leaders unanimously repealed a longstanding ban on car cruising on Tuesday night. And according to uh, council member Jose Rodriguez in national city, ultimately this is what democracy is about. It's about people coming together and saying, this is a law that we like, or is this a law that should be repealed? Well, it is. I mean, sadly though, democracy is what banned (laughs) The, the cruising in the first place. But, you know, this is the United States of America. This is the land of the free and the home of the brave. This is a land where we have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So why in the hell are they banning cruising? Now, sure, there's more people on the road. It gets a little congested. And if you want to go through that area... Yeah, it's going to suck because there's going to be a lot of traffic. But they only do it on certain nights. Like this is on Tuesday nights. And it's usually only on one street. So knowing that, you can avoid it. You can know how to go around it. I mean, the first time you get stuck in it, you'll probably be upset. But you learn and you'll just you'll work your way through it. It's not a big deal. But for those people that come together, they've got something to celebrate. They have experiences to share. And men and women and children, it's not just the car. It's like the whole culture comes together. And it's cool. It really is cool. And especially if you're like a a car enthusiast to see these cars from the 1950s that have been restored. I mean, some of them have been restored to be almost original status. And they're beautiful. You think, God, how much do they spend to restore these vehicles? It's incredible. It's a labor of love. But I, I just think it's great. Now, to me, this is a freedom. This is freedom. Now, the, the, now, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop, and those will be the environmentalists. They're going to be upset with all of the CO2 emissions, the carbon that's being emitted, and they're going to be angry at all these inefficient 1950s cars or their gas-powered cars that are creating pollution. So you know that's coming. So are, we, are they going to convert these to EVs? Are we going to have EV cruising? I don't know. <laughs> Makes you wonder. Article goes on to say, and these are all articles that are, by the way, I get a lot of this from the San Diego Union Tribune, some of it from Times of San Diego, some of it a Voice of San Diego, some of it from the Times Advocate in Escondido. This article is from the San Diego UT. Many have said that such bans are racially motivated. 
though others have said they were simply a reaction to crime trends that existed when they were first put in place. They're definitely racially motivated in some cases. Crime, you know, was is there crime when there's cruising? There might be. I mean, you know, any kind of an activity that draws people together, there's going to be a certain element that's going to be there that's going to be, you know, causing some trouble for whatever reason. But this is mostly all love. I mean, it's like 98% love and 2% something else. But breaking the law, I mean, I mean, come on. I mean, the laws they were quote unquote breaking were probably mostly traffic related. It was just mostly people just didn't want that in their neighborhood. It's another example of this nimbyism. God damn it. Don't put that cruising shit in my yard. That's what it is. They don't want housing. They don't want cruising. They don't want anything. They just want to hit the pause button on their VCR and freeze time so that their community remains the same with, with, with failing to understand that things evolve. So the current reality is that um, this event is about friends and family members coming together to drive low and slow and admire mobile works of art that their owners have spent decades perfecting. Oh, yeah, exactly. In some ways, it's about the cars, according to another council member. This is Marcus Bush. In some ways, it's about the cars, but it's also a civil rights issue. It's about the movement of people and the restriction of the movement of people. (laughs) The struggle, right? Is it a civil rights issue? Well, it kind of is. I mean, people should be free to move about. And in this case, yeah, it, it, it's either directly or indirectly targeted at Hispanics, at Latino. So there is a civil rights angle to this. But ultimately, if America's, I mean, you see these guys on street corners. I, I go down Palmerado Road and Ted Williams Parkway here in Poway on Sundays, and all the Trump guys are out there. They're waving their flags and they've got their signs say freedom, honk for freedom. But I'll bet you they'd be the first ones to ban the cruising in their neighborhood because they don't want that element in their neighborhood. They want freedom for me, but not for thee. That's a big part of it. That's the hypocrisy of it all. Um, Ed Franklin on the live stream. Thanks, Ed, for uh, piping in here. We cruised Valley Parkway in the 1980s, and it was amazing. Yeah. See, cruising's cool, you know? And you're talking about things for young people to do. Now, granted, a lot of these lowriders, man, you got to have some money to restore these things. So a lot of them are, you know, they're guys like me with gray hair that are driving them. But even for youngsters, we, we used, I used to go cruising, like I said, in, in San Mateo and Belmont, back in the early 80s when I was in high school. And it was a thing to do and it was fun, you know? I mean, it's a little bit like, um, God, what was that Steven Spielberg movie that starred Ron Howard? It was like right before Happy Days. Um, America Graffiti. It was kind of like that. It kind of had that vibe. It was fun. Um, Ed goes on to say Valley Parkway in Escondido. Of course, Cruising Grand has replaced that. Yeah, they, they've done a nice job there on Grand Avenue in Escondido. I mean, that's a really neat community. A lot of great restaurants and bars, some boutique shops there. Uh, my, I told you, my mom lives in Escondido. And so a lot of times we'll take her out to lunch 
there on Grand. And, and there's a lot of really nice places to eat there. I mean, some that are real casual, some that are a little bit, you know, a little more high-end-ish, but not too foofy. Um, and they do a really good job of like preserving that old sort of Escondido culture, that Main Street um, USA kind of walking environment. And yeah, they'll have those cruising events. And it brings people together. And it's great. So why in the hell are they banning it? And it's, it's interesting, too, in National City, which I'm, I'm certain has a higher Latino community, a higher percentage of Latinos than most other cities in the county. Why would they be the ones that would be banning cruising? You think the ones that would be banning cruising would be like Del Mar, <laughs> you know? Uh, why is National City doing that? Uh, but it's good to see that they've turned the corner. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, yeah, Ed goes on to say, American Graffiti, that's the one. Yeah, that was American Graffiti. Okay, um, I talked a little bit about Poway when I was mentioning some of this stuff. Let me just, I got one more thing to tell you about Poway. I have a website, it's called PowayIsAwesome.com. If you go to PowayIsAwesome.com, you can download pictures that can be used as backgrounds for your phone or backgrounds for your tablet or, or desktop backgrounds for your computer. And these are photos of Iron Mountain in Poway, of Old Poway Park, of Lake Poway, pictures of the railroads, of the lake, of the walking trails, a lot of really neat photos. They've all been scaled and sized to fit mobile phones, tablets, and desktop computers. And um, they're free. You can download them for free. Just go to PowayIsAwesome.com. Just put in your name and email, and you'll get a link where you can access that for free. Okay, let's move along. Um, I want to talk now about a follow-up on three stories that we had covered before. And one of them was on the Poway Unified School Bond Measure. Now, we did a, I did a whole long thing about this where Superintendent Marion Kim Phelps is getting all of her ducks in a row to come forward with another school bond to fund infrastructure improvements. And that's likely coming in 2024. And I I did a whole thing about ways they could actually fund that from their operating budget and other ways they don't have to tap taxpayers to do this. But I saw a really interesting letter to the editor in PomeradoNews.com, which is what publishes Palo, the Poway Chieftain and the Rancho Bernardo News Journal. And I want to read this guy's letter to the editor because it was right on target. And this is from a guy named Mark Berry from Poway. And it's titled, Another Take on the School Bond Issue. In regards to the April 6th column by Poway Unified School District Superintendent Marion Kim Phelps, there is a word that elicits more groans than bond issue, <laughs> which is not a word. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, that's what she said. Uh, what word, B word initiates gro groans. And she said bond issue. Um, but the, the B word that initiates the groan is the word billion. And billion is the amount we owe as a result of the last bond measure. Even after the new leadership team and new board of education has spent the last six years, quote, fixing the financial mistakes of the past, unquote, we still owe $1 billion. And he's right. He's absolutely right. We don't even start making payments on that until 2033. And then it continues for 20 years to the tune of a billion dollars. Um, the proponents of the original measure no longer live here. After saddling us with debt, they move before the bills come due. 
Former Poway Unified School Board member Penny Rantful now lives in Colorado. Yeah. I mean, everyone that was on the school board there in 2010, 2012 that passed this bond, they're gone. They've all been removed from office or they retired. Um, Andy Patapow is gone. Um, he retired. Todd Gutschow, um, he lost his election in 2014. Sadly, Todd passed away. Mark Davis, um, who has a big family here in Poway, he lost his reelection bid in 2014. And I'm not sure if he still lives in town. He might. I know his kids are getting older. He might get to the point where he's got an empty nest. Um, who was the other one? Linder Vanderveen was on the board then too. And a lot of them, yeah, they've moved or, or they've retired, but definitely they're not in office. So Mark Berry from Poway wrote this letter to the editor. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I get it where Marion Kim Phelps, the superintendent and the existing current five school board members are saying, hey, we're trying to fix up the financials. And they have, they've, they've improved things because it was such a disaster with John Collins and the previous school boards. They've improved things, but still we owe a billion dollars. We're still getting screwed by the billion dollar bond and we haven't even started making payments on it. And now they want to add another bond. And so some of us are saying, okay, like, I get it. I understand you need this, these infrastructure improvements, but, you know, come on, man. We're already giving you a billion, and now you want another billion or more? I mean, at what point does this end? I mean, like, I go down the street here, like on Pomerado Road, and there's a private school, St. Michael's. has a Catholic church there and a, and a um, Catholic, uh, you know, parochial school. Now, Say what you will about private schools. Say what you will about religious private schools. But you know what? They're not charging us a billion dollars to upgrade their facilities. They're doing their own fundraising. They're getting money from donors, from people in the parish, from families that actually their students go there. They're not coming back to us. And you know, since they're taking more direct control over their own school, their own infrastructure, their own property, they're going to make better choices than what Poway Unified did 10 years ago when they borrowed roughly $100 million and agreed to pay it back with $1 billion. I mean, we were a national disgrace. We were on the front page of the New York Times. We were the leading news story locally and in, and, and in many cases nationally about this crazy school bond in this city called Poway near San Diego. What in the hell are these people doing? But yeah, we still have to pay the bill. And Mark Berry's right. So I would encourage our school board members, our superintendent to say, look, find another way. You're already getting about a half a billion dollars a year, like roughly $500 million a year in revenue every year. Find a way to take a little slice of that to fund this rather than coming back to taxpayers who are already burdened by the billion dollar bond. So Mark, thanks for writing that letter, the letter to the editor. Okay. A couple more comments here that I want to uh, bring people up to speed on the Rancho Bernardo cannabis situation. They've gotten approval. Now this is big news. So the San Diego planning commission denies the appeals by Rancho Bernardo residents that wanted to block a cannabis outlet. So, Urban Leaf, which is the company, by the way, they spell urban, U-R-B-N, Urban Leaf um, 
the approval for that to open a cannabis outlet in Rancho Bernardo um, went through despite the opposition of community officials and residents. By a five to zero vote, the commission on April 6th denied appeals by the Rancho Bernardo Planning Board and resident Robert Brianza. Now, Urban Leaf filed this application in 2019. Let's talk about regulations that make it hard to do business. Regulations that get in the way of entrepreneurship that create employment, job opportunities, income generation. In this case, to sell a product that's a medicine that help people overcome stress and anxiety and depression, fight the symptoms of chemotherapy and glaucoma and PTSD. Yet it got vigorous opposition from the community to the point where these entrepreneurs have been trying to do this for like over four years. And they've been mired in red tape and planning board commissions that have been denying their ability to do this. So according to the San Diego, so what happened is the San Diego approved it. Rancho Bernardo planning board said no. But Rancho Bernardo is part of San Diego. They don't have the same juice as a city does. They're just a little portion, a little neighborhood of San Diego. They're not like Poway or Escondido that has their own city government. So the the Rancho Bernardo planning board just made a recommendation because they got all the locals that, you know, and Rancho Bernardo, you know, older probably a lot more conservative. They don't want this marijuana coming to their town. Oh my God, the children, which is part of their objection. But according to the San Diego Planning Commission, because it you know, was appealed and um, the San Diego Planning Commission reviewed the case and said, we have to go with the way the laws are and the way it has been interpreted. It is very important we stay consistent. It meets the codes. It meets the requirements. I don't think I could find any factual error or new information that would have changed the recommendation. I think the findings are supported. So the findings we need to overturn the project on appeal, I can't find that. Good on this guy. So he's pushing for equality under the law. You know, meets the law. He can find no reasonable objection to this. And he wants laws to be applied consistently. Good on him. I wish more public officials are like that, because usually public officials will say they want equality under the law, but then they'll do a special favor for this person and a special favor for that person. And then some people get subsidized for this at other people's expense, and there's all this central planning that goofs it all up. So they're going to allow this to go through. So according to Kelly Moden, who is on the, who's the vice chair of the, um, of the planning commission for San Diego said, I hear the community, I hear the community and I can see that this is definitely something that is very controversial, that the community largely doesn't want this outlet. However, reviewing all of this and the appeal, I like it. Um, I feel like it meets the letter of the law and what we have approved in the past. So, I'm really happy to hear this. Um, Does this mean I want people to be walking around stoned in Rancho Bernardo? No. Does this mean that this is going to be, you know, the corruption of our youth in Rancho Bernardo? No way is that going to happen. This is a place that sells medicine that some people use recreationally to relieve stress, anxiety, depression, 
symptoms of glaucoma, symptoms of chemotherapy, um, uh, after effects of chemotherapy, um, dealing with PTSD. This is, I mean, marijuana has been so wrongly classified and categorized for so long, treated as this voodoo medicine, this reefer madness thing, when legitimately it's a medicine. And I think as we are more evolved, as we become more educated, we understand the health benefits of what this offers. And oh, by the way, this is the United States of America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, a place where we have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Why in the hell are they trying to shut down this cannabis outlet in Rancho Bernardo? So the appeal has been denied. Great news. Um, and according to uh, Ben Weir, the, uh, the planning board's review committee chair, he said the residents of Rancho Bernardo are against this cannabis project. And he provided data showing the number of people that are against it. But again, this is like NIMBYs. This is like people that, want to control what other people do rather than minding their own business. So I'd be hopeful to see this kind of thing relax. I mean, again, it's like the the Trump protesters are holding a sign that says freedom, but they want freedom for me, but not for thee. So we have to allow these things to happen. And if it's something that just so upsets you, then you need to do something with your life rather than trying to control someone else's life. Now, the other part of this that's worthy of mentioning is that they're already getting, people are already smoking pot in Rancho Bernardo. People are already consuming gummies with cannabis. It's being delivered by cannabis companies in San Diego and other parts of the county. They have like Uber Eats drivers that drive it in. And leave it at your doorstep. Or people are driving out of their community to go to retailers in other parts of San Diego to get this stuff. I mean, why they don't have a cannabis uh, in Poway is the same thing. I mean, whether or not the community wants it or not, that should be determined based on the business, not by the government officials. If the, if the community didn't want it, then no one would go there and they would go out of business. But you know what I'll bet? When they set up shop in Rancho Bernardo, they're going to do well. Do, you th- do I think they're going to, I mean, again, I'm just, this is just a hunch. Are they going to go out of business in the, in the first like six months or a year? I doubt it. Because you're going to get a lot of these people that were on the down low, that were getting it through other means. They're just going to now go buy it there. It's convenient. There are a lot of seniors that could use cannabis as, as legit medicine. There's probably a lot of holier-than-thou folks that are protesting it verbally, but once it's open, they're going to be out there going to get it. I'll bet you that'll be true, too. Okay, let's move on. Um, And this is the Pothole Survey of San Diego. And, um, you know, I comment a lot on the disaster of Carmel Mountain Road, of Ted Williams Parkway. The roads in Rancho Bernardo are just a mess. There's potholes and gravel, and it's just, it's like, you know, you're like Frogger, you know, trying to cross the street, avoiding all these these obstacles in your way when you're going down these streets. I mean, Carmel Mountain Road especially is just the worst. Well, you know, there's been a lot of rain. And so the, there's a lot more potholes and people are really angry about it. In fact, I saw a piece where um, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger was repairing a pothole in his neighborhood because he was so frustrated with the local city government wasn't fixing it. So he and one of his neighbors got together and got some asphalt and fixed it themselves. You know, of course, Arnold makes it into a media event and he got photos and, you know, so it's now it's all over the media. But good on Arnold for doing that. I mean, you know, taking some proactive measures to clean up their own neighborhood. But he shouldn't have to do that because he's already paying taxes that go to the city. And what could be more important than fixing the roads? I mean, if you look at most cities, governments, their primary purpose is safety, police and fire. That's usually always number one. But infrastructure is always number two, right? And then then education, but that's really more the school districts rather than the city government. But infrastructure is the, the second part of that. So why in the heck aren't they doing this? And then ranch, and then you know they keep repaving roads over and over again, but there are some roads that just never get fixed, like Carmel Mountain Road. It's been a disaster for years. Now, thankfully, here in, in, in Poway, our roads are, are pretty good because they have a system and they resurface the roads like once every seven years. Maybe it's once every eight. And they have like eight different zones or seven different zones. And then every year, the, the roads in those zones get upgraded. They get slurry sealed or re-asphalted or in other cases, you know, a more serious upgrade. Of course, that doesn't count like when they're dropping a new gas line on Pomerado Road. But the rest of San Diego, people are really angry. I mean, Hacksaw was on the podcast, you know, on the Lee Hacksaw Hamilton podcast. And he lives out in the, the Westwood community in Rancho Bernardo. Those roads there are a mess. They're just a disaster. And they've been like that for a long time. And people have been complaining for a long time. So what is San Diego doing? So the title of this article is, Where are San Diego's Worst Potholes? A laser-equipped van is roaming 2,800 miles of city streets to find out. So they've created this van with all these sensors and they're driving it all over San Diego to measure all the streets and to gather all the data. And you're thinking, okay, I mean, it's, it's good to get all this data. It's good to find out which roads are the worst and need the most fixing. But certainly there are some obvious ones that need to be fixed right away. And I would imagine to a great degree, it's always the squeaky wheel thing, right? You know, it's the people that complain the most are the ones that get the most help. And and some people complain more loudly than others, right? But there, I mean, you would think that they would fix like the most major arteries first and get those going before you start moving into some of the smaller neighborhoods. But they're doing this in-depth survey, like, okay, all right, yeah, that sounds good. So a van specifically equipped with lasers and other tools that measure pavement smoothness began roaming the city's 2,800 miles of streets in early March. So I guess it's like one of those Google Maps cars, you know, that drives around. It'd be cool if this was an automated, you know, driverless vehicle, but most likely there's probably a, a guy in there. That is, of course, that they can hire drivers because that's been a trouble, the labor shortage. The Rancho Bernardo will be surveyed in the coming weeks, but no date has been announced yet. Potholes that developed during the recent rain have exasperated drivers on Bernardo Center Drive and Poblado Road, among others in Rancho Bernardo. Well, yeah, a lot of them have gotten worse because of the rains. Any reasonable person would give a certain sense of slack to that because we understand that when it rains, the roads are damaged, they get a lot more potholes. 
This has not been a problem just recently. This is a problem that went back when we had a drought and there were no rain or very little. So this, this guy's driving around. He's surveying all of this. They're going neighborhood by neighborhood, and they'll do so through the late summer. So previously, the city's formula for deciding which crumbling streets got repaired focused primarily on how badly a street was in disrepair, as well as traffic volume and proximity to tourist attractions. (laughs) Okay, proximity to tourist attractions. Okay, that's money. That's Chamber of Commerce. That's getting money of outsiders to come to San Diego and spend money here. But it was focused on how bad the street was, the traffic volume, you know, like fixing the major arteries, which makes sense. But now <laughs> this is the, the, um, the era of diversity um, and inclusion and all of the new kind of, you know, concepts that are being introduced into the political climate. Now what they're doing is a new formula adds in the neighborhood equity, climate resiliency, mobility, and proximity to city parks and libraries. You're like, oh man, all of a sudden now, fixing the streets is now politicized. <laughs> so now if, if you're doing it based on neighborhood equity, then what are you going to do? You, you got to like, you have to measure the demographic profile of every neighborhood. Okay, we got to fix the roads in the Vietnamese neighborhood and in the Filipino neighborhood and in the Latino neighborhood and in the black neighborhood. And we've got to do all of those equitably. We, and then how do you decide which, which neighborhood is, you know, worthy of that? Because every neighborhood is a mix of them all. I mean, here, I live in Poway, but I've got Asian people, black people, people of different religions up and down my street. <laughs> what, what's, what's our, you know... Um, Equity score. Um, this and then climate resiliency. What does that mean? I mean, does that mean that roads that are built with climate needs in mind get higher priority if there is such a thing? Mobility. Wait, roads that better cater to people with disabilities. I mean, how do you measure that? Proximity to city parks and libraries. Okay, but really is. Is that the primary? I mean, you know, city parks and libraries are nice, but pretty much people want to be able to drive their car to work. People want to drive their car to go shopping, to do their everyday activities. So I don't know. This is just weird to me. Um, now, granted, you know, there, it's, there is a legit issue. I mean, I'll go back to the equity thing. Where there are some neighborhoods, and there was an article that was written a few months ago about how there were some neighborhoods in Southeast San Diego, which is overwhelmingly Latino, overwhelmingly people of color, where some of the roads are still dirt. I mean, they're not even paved with potholes. They're just dirt, which is amazing to think in the year 2023, we have that, but we do. And by the way, they even acknowledged that in this article. And they said they won't be surveying the dirt roads. Okay. But it just seems like some of these roads are just so utterly obvious that need to be fixed that you think that they would be deploying resources to do that. And I know Faulkner, when he was the mayor of San Diego, made this a big priority and they did a lot of work. I remember for the longest time that Paseo um, Lucita, is that the name of it? The one that's the road that where Rancho Bernardo High School is and Bernardo 
uh, Heights Middle School is, um, Paseo Lucido. That road used to be horrible. And so does Saber Springs Parkway. Just terrible. And they finally repaved those about four years ago or so. Parts of, um, like in Rancho Bernardo, if you go into the Seven Oaks community, particularly the Seven Oaks community that's south of Rancho Bernardo Road, and you kind of, there's a couple of main roads through there, like Lomica, but there's a lot of little side roads that are smaller. Those roads are like really coarse grit sandpaper. Like it would be impossible to ride a skateboard on it. It's so lumpy. And God forbid you, you were a kid and fell off your bicycle. I mean, you would get the raspberry, the gash wound of all time. It's so bad. So some of these roads are not just pothole ridden, not only have all these undulations. We talked about Carmel Mountain Road. According to Mike Devine, who's a listener of the podcast, he said it might have to do with the clay content of the dirt in that area. And that kind of makes sense because the road is has shifted. It's like Play-Doh. And that's led to a lot of the problems with the road there on Carmel Mountain Road, east of the fifteen. But some of this is, you know, are just utterly obvious. Other cases are roads that have legitimately been neglected. But it just makes you think about, like, when city government officials are prioritizing their budget, where are they focusing their money? We hear all about, you know, climate change and, and, and all these other initiatives, which are nice, but they're not necessarily the meat and potatoes of what city government should be doing. Police, fire, roads, water infrastructure. I mean, that should be 80 plus percent of what local governments do. Uh, But now they're deploying a van to drive around and to do all these measurements, which is cool. They might learn some things. They might discover that certain roads need work that no one would ever, no one really complained about it. That's possible. The new survey will cost just under $500,000 less than the $560,000 spent in 2016 and far less than the $700,000 city officials had budgeted for the new survey. Apparently they previously did a windshield survey, which basically are people driving around looking, but they're already getting feedback from people in the community. But apparently this, this van, they're calling it the Fugro. Fugro's lasers measure distress on the roadway as vehicles drive over it and they can see potholes and smaller depressions. Fugro also has special rideability tool that measures how smooth a road is. This is more efficient and we're getting more comprehensive and better data out of it. Minor uh, upgrades to a street with slurry seal cost about $130,000 a mile, while a more fundamental asphalt overlay, which lasts longer and looks better, costs about $780,000 per mile. So, yeah, it, it costs money to do this. Council member Marnie Von Wilpert, okay, she's the one that represents Rancho Bernardo. She, she's the council member that local Poway guy, Joe Calabrese, has been critical of her for not prioritizing Carmel Mountain Road. He's written multiple letters to the editor at PalmeradoNews.com. Well, council member Marnie Von Wilpert said the rains have made the survey even more important. 
Okay, yeah, I get that. The rain is crushing our roads, so I'm glad we're going to get this study done so we know the level of each street. <laughs> okay, so they're going to measure all the streets. Okay, that's good. I mean, I, they might discover some new things. They might find out that there's a street in Tierra Santa that is a big problem that no one mentioned anything and needs to repair. It needs to be high, more highly prioritized. Okay. But it's just typical government, right? It's like if, if there are streets that have problems, you fix them and you fix the most obvious ones first. You fix the ones that are on the biggest roads first, the most highly used roads first. And then you gradually work your way to secondary and tertiary level roads. And if you're a politician, my God, you would think this would be really high on your priority list to address because it's the thing that most people complain about. It's the thing that irritates the hell out of people almost more than anything from city government or bad roads. The, the, you know, say what you will about the city of Poway's local government. There's a lot of people that are critical of Mayor Steve Voss and our city council, but they do a pretty good job with the roads. I mean, they're not perfect, but the roads here are pretty good. And what they've been able to do is by having a really solid system to manage the roads, they essentially eliminate that as an objection from the community. And they make it easy for people to not bitch about the roads so they can focus their attention elsewhere. And it makes it easier for those guys to be reelected. So that's a good thing. Okay. Um, wow. This, we're going crazy here. This is two hours and 24 minutes. And let's go to our community forum and we'll include some thoughts and comments. And, and if you still want to get involved in this, leave your thoughts and comments on the live stream on either Facebook or YouTube. I'll get you involved in this. But I got some YouTube comments that I thought I'd get involved in this into our community forum segment. And this is one from Lizarine. And she was commenting on or Lisa Reen, I should say. And she was commenting on our podcast segment about why San Diego, why does San Diego have so much homelessness? And she said, it's growing everywhere, but there's plenty of empty houses and buildings. You know, I've heard this objection before. In fact, I remember we did a podcast ooh, a long time ago, three or four years ago with Jessica Johnson. Um, I don't know if you know who she is. She's very special. Um, Jessica Johnson lives here in, in Poway, and she creates this uh, project called Hidden San Diego. And it's a website, and she has books, and she finds all of these really cool places throughout San Diego to go visit. And a lot of these are hidden. They're like these special little gems that you don't find on TripAdvisor or a lot of these other common tourist websites. Well, I remember we were talking about in our podcast and we went on a tangent and we talked about housing and the housing crisis. And I remember she said, well, there's plenty of vacant houses. We don't really have a housing problem. And I remember I had to bite my tongue <laughs> because I could have gone down that, that tangent with her, but I wanted to stay focused on Hidden San Diego and what her book was about. And so I just stayed the course. But uh, there are people who say this. They'll say, yeah, we've got plenty of empty houses and buildings. We don't really have a problem. And we do have lots of housing, uh, empty houses and empty buildings. Like when we talked earlier on this podcast about the county of San Diego has empty office buildings that they're going to make available for homeless. And I think that's good. If the government's going to make take action, that's one thing they can do is utilize their government resources. But sometimes people say this, there's lots of empty houses. It's because 
there are too many people that have vacation homes. Too many people have Airbnbs that are just not being used. Too many people that are foreign investors that live in China that own a house here that they only use a couple of months a year and then it sits vacant for 10 months. What the hell? Well, okay, but people own those properties. I mean, you can't just... If someone, I mean, it's the whole concept of property rights. If, if you own the land, it's yours to use as you see fit. And to allow, I think what happens is sometimes there's vacant homes and a homeless person will move in and squat and you can't get rid of them. You're like, well, what the hell? That's someone else's property that they've invested money in. And for whatever reason, it's vacant. It might be in between renters. It might be during a time when they're doing home improvement. It might be during a time when they purposely don't have anyone in the house. Or they may be so wealthy that they have a vacation house that they only use two months a year. But that shouldn't be any justification to change the rules on the houses that happen to be empty. They need to do just build more housing. So, yeah, there are plenty of empty houses. That's true. But, but even if you could wave a magic wand and make every empty house available and move everyone in, it still, I don't think, solves the housing crisis. So, I don't know. I just thought that I've often seen that comment made almost sort of like a wave of the hand. I, I find that one interesting. <laughs> Going back on, on the live stream uh, Yuri Boland saying the happiest people about potholes are mechanics and discount tires, etc. Yeah, they are. They love that. And by the way, you know, if you damage your car from a pothole, you can um, file that with the city and they'll pay you back some amount of money to cover your repair because they weren't able to manage the roads properly. That's interesting. Okay, let's keep going down here on the uh, community forum. This is from Mike Devine talking about school, San Diego schools in decline. And he was really talking to me directly. He says, your opinion on school budgets should qualify you for another run for school board immediately. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. Uh, thanks for that. I did run for school board in 2014, and I lost by just 1%. It was close. Uh, and I loved it. I, I enjoyed that campaign. It was a lot of fun. I met a lot of great people, learned a lot. Um, and yeah, you, you can tell from my comments, um, you know, I'm I'm all about kind of protecting taxpayers. And the way and back in 2014, it was the John Collins era when Poway Unified was a complete disaster. Um, and so there was a lot to talk about in terms of managing school finances. But I did come up short. I don't think I'll ever run again. Um, definitely not for school board. Because my kids, you know, back then, both of my kids were in high school. Now, um, you know, my kids are, you know, or they're adults and they're enjoying their life. Will I run for office again in my future? Maybe. Uh, maybe. Uh, would it be for school board? No. Uh, would it be for city council here in my hometown of Poway? Probably not. Um, if I ever did something, I would probably run for a higher office with the full understanding I have no chance to win. Like state assembly, state senate, or Congress, something like that, where I could just do what I'm doing on this podcast, where I can just speak out on these issues and share my opinions and educate the populace to my point of view and to try to sort of win people over in this, this um, 
winning people over with the court of public opinion. Knowing full damn well as an independent that I'm not affiliated with Republicans or Democrats, that I would get no funding, no support, no endorsements from any of the political establishment, which would certainly doom me to lose. That would probably be the only way I would run again. And even then, I mean, what's the point? I might as well just keep doing my podcast. Uh, so we'll see. Okay, moving on down the line here. And this is from DC52. Commenting on that San Diego schools in decline podcast segment. But, you know, part of that was that people were leaving San Diego because of the housing crisis. And so school enrollment was in decline. That was one of a number of reasons why school enrollment was in decline. And DC 52 says, love your show, though I vehemently, excuse me, hold on a second. I'm going on two and a half hours. I need to drink some water. So DC 52 says, love your show, though I vehemently disagree with your insistence that arbitrarily raising rents to the max allowed by law isn't actually the problem and building the problem away is the answer. Any new development will still be charged max rent and the cycle just continues. This, this is a really good topic. So the, the objection is, well, these damn greedy landlords, I mean, they're going to be trying to get as much money as they can for their place. And if you just build more, they're still going to charge $2,500, $3,500, whatever it is, and we're still going to get screwed. Well, not necessarily. First of all, let's just, let's just say it straight up, okay? Landlords and renters are going to pursue their own self-interest. Landlords are going to try to get the maximum they can get, and renters are going to try to pay the lowest that they can. That dynamic will always exist. And depending on the conditions in the market, the availability of competitive alternatives, the availability of other vacant places that are available for sale or for rent can change the market dynamics and therefore change the price. So a landlord is going to try to get as much as they damn well can. And I don't blame a landlord for doing that. They spent money on that property. They're probably making a big mortgage payment. They probably had to upgrade the roof and paint it. And they have to do upgrades on the property. And they got to come in and fix the toilet when the renter, you know, has a problem. And they're going to try to get the most they can. It's an investment property after all. They're in a business. But. Renters are going to try to pay the least they can. And so they find a way to meet in the middle to find a compromise position. But that compromise will be determined by the market conditions. If there are 10 vacant properties in on a city block, then that renter is going to have a competitively advantageous position and they'll be able to negotiate a lower price. Landlords might have to give them a lower price and offer them a free month to move in. And do some of these incentive-laden deals to get people to come in. So should there be a law that limits these, these landlords from charging as much as they can? No. But at the same time, there shouldn't be a law that limits renters from trying to pay the least they can. There shouldn't be a cap. There shouldn't be a floor either on rent. So that the market dynamics of buyers and sellers and supply and demand will always continue. It's just that right now it's particularly acute 
because of all the distortions that were created in the market because of the politicians that limited construction, thus limiting the supply, that dumped $6 trillion of cash in the marketplace that ended up going into people's pockets, which was being spent, and landlords could charge more money because people had more money to spend. Many people were getting paid more money in COVID relief than they were from their regular day job. Then meanwhile, you got other people that are squatting on available properties. The landlords can't get them out because they're protected. There's these these, uh, laws that prevent evictions, which further reduces the amount of supply, thus causing prices to go up. So the solution is to deregulate. Okay, and then here's the last one on the community forum. This is from Dennis S. And this is on one of my YouTube shorts. I do those, you know, vertical YouTube shorts. They're like less than 60 seconds, which by the way, if you're doing social media, if you're doing a podcast, these are great. I mean, I do, you know, I do my live streams and the live stream itself gets a very modest number of of views. And you add up my downloads of the audio only and the full live stream. I mean, it's under a hundred, but when I chop this into pieces into individual like three, five, 10 minute segments on YouTube, those do really well. In many cases, hundreds, if not thousands. And then I also create these shorts, which I'm talking about here, where I just do like a 45 second video because I'll just summarize some of the things I'm talking about in the podcast. And I post that on YouTube shorts. I post it on Instagram and TikTok and a variety of other platforms. Those do super well. Well, anyways, I did one here. Um, on the housing crisis and on Gavin Newsom and on Todd Gloria. And Dennis S. said, not sure you can call landlord greed the fault of politicians. Contributed to it, possibly, but don't blame it all on them. Well, like I said before, the landlords are going to be greedy. They're going to pursue their self-interest all the time. And so are other landlords. And so are renters. And so are home buyers. Everyone is trying to maximize their own self-interest. And that's good. Everyone's trying to pursue their own happiness. That's good. The reason that they're getting rewarded is because the market dynamics are rewarding them because they're able, the landlords are able to get a lot more money because the government has restricted the supply. And remember, we said earlier in the, in the podcast, the government is even subsidizing these landlords. The government is giving these landlords cash so they will take in low-income people at a lower price. So in the end, the landlord comes out at the price that that, that landlord probably wanted. And that just incentivizes landlords to keep their price high. As long, if you get subsidies, it's going to make the price higher. So the politicians screwed it up (laughs) by limiting supply, by subsidizing renters and landlords, by preventing evictions, by all the, the COVID relief that distorted demand. That's true because a lot of people moved out of San Francisco and moved into other parts of California, other parts of America. And it caused this massive distortion of demand for housing because of COVID. And then 
You have all the other distortions that are created by politicians in the form of mortgage deductions and um, artificially low interest rates by the Federal Reserve. I mean, I can go on and on and on. All the housing policies that are so mucked up. I mean, you look at the industries that have the most rampant price increases. They're all the ones that the government has their most fingers in. Housing, higher education, um, energy, health care. That's a big one. Um, all of these industries are having surging prices, and it's because all the central planners are involved in it, and they muck it up and make it worse. And then in the industries where there's very little of that central planning, very little of that regulatory you know, nonsense, like televisions – the prices keep going down and the pro- the product quality keeps going up. And now we can buy these huge flat screen TVs for like a couple hundred bucks in some cases. I mean, really nice TVs for less than a thousand. Which is incredible. Because the market's allowed to be free. The market is allowed to innovate and to listen and respond to customer demand without all the distortions put in by all the politicians. So that's part of my soapbox. Okay. Um, we are at a, an end, thankfully, at two hours and 40 minutes. Um, this is the John Riley Project. If, if you want to learn more, um, I give you some websites here you can check out. You can go to my website for the podcast. It's johnreillyproject.com. If you go to johnreillyproject.com, all of our podcast Episodes are there with links to all the popular platforms like um, Amazon, Google, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora. All of them are there. If you go to johnreillyproject.com, you can access all the um, video clips, links to all the YouTube videos. They're actually displayed and they play within the website. You can sign up on our mailing list. Um, You can read blog articles. And I got a bunch of other stuff there. So go to johnreillyproject.com. The other thing you can do. If you just want to, you know, tell people about the podcast, you can tell them that site or you can say go to connectwithjohnny.com. And there you can access all my social media platforms and there you can connect and like, follow, subscribe and share on social media to continue the conversation. And I love talking to people with the YouTube comments. I'm really I'm very busy in Twitter. <laughs> Probably a little more than I should be, uh, but I love talking to people there as well. So if you want to connect the, with the conversation, uh, continue that. Or if you want to be a guest, just reach out to me. You can go to connectwithjohnny.com. And I told you a bit about powwayisawesome.com where you can get those free downloads of desktop wallpapers. You can also go to powwaystore.com where I sell merchandise celebrating the city and the country. Poway shirts and hats and coffee mugs. You can go to powwaystore.com. And then I guess the last plug that I'll make at the end of the podcast episode here is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Um, Lee and I uh, co-host a sports podcast every Thursday at three and every most every Monday at three. And we live stream it on Facebook and YouTube and on Twitter. And it's just look up Lee Hacksaw Hamilton wherever you get your podcasts. Look up Lee Hacksaw Hamilton on YouTube and and all the social media platforms. Again, you can like, follow, share, and subscribe there. And we cover the Padres. We cover the Aztecs. We cover the Rams, the Chargers, the Dodgers, the Angels. We cover um, the NBA playoffs, the NHL playoffs, the World Cup soccer, English Premier uh, soccer. We cover 
college football. I mean, incredible golf. We were just doing a whole bunch on golf on the Masters last weekend. So um, if you want to check out a great sports podcast, especially if you know who Lee Hacksaw Hamilton is, the legendary sports talk radio pioneer on the West Coast, built the sports uh, talk industry here on the West Coast from Baja to the Canadian Rockies on Extra 690 back in the late 80s. He came to San Diego and built an empire. And now sports talk is all over America. Um, And he was the host at 690 and at 1090. But Lee is still doing sports journalism. He still has his own website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com, where he writes on that every day. A lot of really good columns, good insight there. But we get together twice a week. We do a podcast just like this. We take thoughts and comments in the fans forum. And if you want to check that out, uh, go to Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube or on social media. He's everywhere. Okay, friends, uh, this is the John Riley Project. This is episode number 316. And looking forward to seeing you down the road. Um, Have a great spring, a great April. And we'll be back at you next Wednesday, right around 12 noon. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog, or get more information, please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.